This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Belfast native, Royal Marine, and actor Tip Cullen. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from experiencing the troubles as a child his journey into the British military, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, his transition out, his journey into acting, mental health, 
leadership, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tip Cullen. Enjoy. Well, Tip, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to The Collective. That's where you and I were first connected. And secondly, thank you for coming on your evening, my afternoon on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, no, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's always an honor. And, I, and looking at your podcast, I'm deeply honored. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, likewise, trust me. <laughs> um, very first question, and where on planet Earth are we finding you this evening? I'm in what we call this side of the pond as the sunny Southwest. So I, I live in uh, the Southwest of England. And there's a reason for that. It's when I, I first, my first commander, you know, I arrived in was in the Southwest and that's where I sort of laid my roots, this side of the Irish sea, obviously where I'm really from <laughs> and where, where my genes and my blood come from are, are from the Emerald Isle. I'm an Irish man who, who just went in his own path. Well, let's start there because I love to, you know, begin literally at, at zero on someone's timeline and walk through. So tell me exactly where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Uh, right. I joined, well, born in late 60s uh, <laughs> in Belfast in uh, what is Northern Ireland, uh, on the island of Ireland. And I, I was born, I think if you could chronologically measure it, I was born about six months before the Northern Irish troubles started. So I grew up in Belfast, uh, surrounded by that and thinking that that was, that's what the world was about. And that was the thing. So, uh, I, I, I loved it. It was brilliant. It was a great adventure. And I learned so much even in those days, but it was definitely in hindsight, it wasn't what you would classify as a normal sort of upbringing being brought up in a, in, basically a hostile environment. But again, I'm not, let's say, say I don't have a monopoly in that, especially in today's world, the way things are happening. So yeah, I can, I can empathize massively with uh, people who are enduring hardship at the minute. So there seemed, and again, I'm, I'm naive to this. I definitely got to experience, you know, the threat. I grew up next to, on a farm next to an MOD base. So we would have to sweep the car for bombs and that kind of thing. When I was a young man, I was born 74. So not too long after you. Yeah. Um, but I didn't live, you know, in Belfast. I've had people on the show. Some were um, Falklands veterans. They served in New Northern Ireland as well. And you obviously get a different perspective. I had an author on who grew up, you know, as a, an Irishman in in Belfast. What lens were you kind of brought up in in your household? Because you had, you know, Catholic and Protestant. Then you had, you know, the the people that wanted independence for Ireland and the people that were loyal to the UK. So kind of what, what was the, the conversation around the, the dinner table for you and your family? 
Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm from the Irish Catholic tradition, so I was brought up as, you know, I'd say in a nationalist family, probably Republican, but in a, in a, in a peaceful sort of sense. They were very, very strong and very human people, but they were, yeah, they were, you know, it's definitely a nationalist or Republican background. And the community I grew up in was was a nationalist and Republican background. So that's what I grew up in. Uh, and like I said, I enjoyed it. I, I, I really, really did enjoy it. It may be this extremely strong character, I think, uh, before I had my destiny, which was to become a Royal Marine. And through my time growing up, Obviously, I aspired from a very young age to become a Royal Marine, but growing up through those years, you you know, I, I think it created me into a non-political type of thing and a non-sectarian, a non-religious type of person because you grew up in that. I think it, it took me a step away from it to realise, you know, how being that binary and, in, 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 you know, in, as you're being brought up in, in like sort of religious and political sort of views you do need to step away sometimes and have a look in from the outside and I'm glad I, I made that decision and, and done what I'd done and then when I went joined the Royal Marines I went back and I served in Northern Ireland uh, I'd done four tours there but for me it was very much uh, important that I did do that I get a lot of people probably critique me for it but I I did it not as a, you know, not as, you know, holding the ground for the British Empire or anything like that. I'd done it to stop Irish people killing other Irish people, killing other people that thought they were British, killing uh, Polish people, Welsh people, Filipino people. There's so many different people have lost their lives from different cultures in the, in the, in the Northern Ireland Troubles. But I, I was there purely to, to stop death and destruction and, and feed, hopefully, a a peaceful solution for, for something that's very, well, it's me. I'm an Irish man. You know, he was, uh, you know, it's important for me to look after my people, no matter what their political uh, allegiance or religious allegiance was, it was just stopping people kill other people. Ever since I was little, I've always struggled with this idea of Irish, English, Scottish, Welsh, and um, people, especially overseas would be like, Oh, you must hate the Irish or the Scottish. I'm like, we're on two tiny little pebbles in the middle of the sea, just us, you know? And, and if you look at our lineage, I mean, the Celts and all that, I mean, there's so much into, you know, into, uh, relationships between those four countries. There's no real walls, you know, I mean, maybe in Belfast specifically, but I mean, you know, as far as each of the countries. And so then when you look at the fact that there were times when, you know, whether it's way back in British history or more recently in the troubles, that Brits were killing Brits or, you know, and or Irish, you know, whatever. I wish there was a name for all of us, all four of us, you know, a non-political name for the, the, you know, all of us together. And it just, it, it's so sad. And I remember even John Graham, who's, uh, uh, he was a power originally and then became SAS and he was in the Falklands um, on Goose Green. And, uh, you know, he was talking about just how, how weird it was. Like, like you said, like we were killing ourselves. We were fighting amongst ourselves. So I've heard you talk. There was a, a DTD podcast you were on, an American veteran and police officer, and you you constantly talk about this humanity, seeing the commonality in people. 
when some people were drawn down a political path or drawn down a religious path, what made you stay in that kind of humanitarian middle ground where you saw humans as humans, even when you were young? Uh, I, I think it was my upbringing that made me sort of, um, I'd stay, stay on the middle ground as such, but growing up as a young man in Belfast, I, I did veer from it. I did. I did think sometimes that I was part of the, you know, the rebellion to fight the empire and everything else. And I, I think every young person will get, will get pulled into that allegiance. And I think that's probably where it influences from maybe say bad influences, as well as good influences. It happens in those formative years. But for me, growing up, I did stray. I did. I wasn't, I was not a perfect young child or teenager but uh i had i i think i came from family and and in a way so a certain level of faith as well that that made me you know stay in the middle ground and just respect people and understand that human beings are human beings and i think that was from my from my mother and father definitely that was completely you know pressed you know not not pressed just you know it was it was enforced. It was like it's important. It was about human beings, and that that's you know that stayed with me throughout you know my time on operations, uh, you know, and all those years in the corps. Uh, and I, th- it wasn't at that stage when I was younger, in my formative years, but as I got older and I did deploy, I realised they were so so right that human beings are human beings, and we all wish and want exactly the same sort of things. You know, you know that simple things like you know food clothing shelter education all those simple things no matter where your culture is or where your background is where your country is that's exactly what you want and that was instilled in me even though i'd say because the situation in in belfast at the time there was a lot of things are to draw you away you know attractions or things you know adventures and again normally involved sort of so we say civil disorder in some way or you know, something you were you were breaking the mold with, and we were gifted by having the threat of being caught up in a, you know, a gun battle or a riot where there's petrol bombs, there's plastic bullets getting thrown about. There's, you know, what I mean, there's all sorts of things. And and to be honest, when you're young at that time, when you're a young young man, it's a bit of a badge of honour, isn't it, to sort of do those sort of things. I wouldn't like to open up too much like with my parents here and obviously what I went on to do afterwards, but that was very much part of the culture. And it was, and I can't say I didn't enjoy it. I'd really frown upon it if, if my sons were in that environment and faced with the same sort of thing. So you could see the, the challenges that my parents had. I didn't have those challenges with my kids growing up. So it's a, it's a very different thing. So uh, in a way I've been blessed. I'm so glad to have parents that, guided me through the the minefield of youth in Belfast and in the troubles, really. When you look at how your kids grew up, what were the limitations that you were unaware of as a child growing up in the troubles in, in Bel- Belfast, if any at all? Oh, no, there's massive limitations, especially to decided by, you know, the, the cut of your cloth or where you were, you know, what, what tribal community you came from. When I grew up playing... Um, the Gaelic games, playing Gaelic football, hurling, uh, handball, uh, and basketball. And they were in my primary school and my my secondary school or high school. 
all we played was Irish games or American games. We never played, well, half American football, we just played basketball, uh, handball, we called it, which is a GAA sport, hurling and Gaelic football. And I loved them, absolutely loved them. But what I, you know, even, even though Ireland's got an un- unbelievable rugby team now, we never had really had that opportunity when I was young. I'm, the first time I played rugby, I've had the opportunity to play it was when I joined the Marines. And it, it's very limited because you're busy people in the, in the core. But I just loved it. It was magical. And I just thought, you know, you know that that option wasn't wasn't there for me. It is not. It is now open, you know, across the thing. But but in the young days, it wasn't. And also, you were limited by um, the the sort of environment in Northern Ireland in those days. I mean, I remember before I went away and joined the Marines, the only the only flag in Northern Ireland you, it was legal to fly was the Irish flag. And I had this sort of like logic on why is why is it that we this is the only flag that you can't really fly. In Northern Ireland is the Irish flag, but uh, you know, what I mean? and it was a very, should we say, you very. I, w- I wouldn't say, yeah, I would say, in a way, you're you're quite oppressed. You mean you were you were, you know, in that, in those periods in the you know the seventies and eighties, growing up in, our, in in that part of Ireland, uh, you were, it was the you know it was still a very oppressive regime in in the area I lived in. You know I mean. And you, you had to, wherever you moved anywhere, went to do, where you'd be searched, you'd be stopped, you'd be, you know what I mean? And there's like, you know, there'd be a soldier like pointing a weapon at you at the end of the street, which we took for normal and granted. And, well, I think that's not, not with, you know, well, anybody else in, in the United Kingdom, you know, or even the, in South and the rest of Ireland would, would be seeing day to day, you know, and, and hearing the bombs going off and, Hearing like the rhymes going down that you could you you know things that you grew up with. Jumping forward, and I'm just interested to get your perspective before we move on with your journey into the military. Um, I first came to America in '94. I did summer camp, so it was like an exchange program that we do for three months. Come work on a summer camp, and then go home. And I remember this real romanticism with the IRA. And Mickey Rourke did a film and supposedly donated all the proceeds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then 9-11 happened, and all of a sudden it didn't seem like terrorism was, you know, revered anymore. That's just a British kid who had to search for bombs under his car. And, you know, on the mainland, we had attacks and, you know, a lot of times it was civilians, innocent civilians that were killed. Um, With your perspective, what was it that kind of helped end a lot of the violence there and try and bring some of the peace was it related at all to money coming from america and 9-11 or is it just complete coincidence through my eyes uh i don't i'm i'm like say i'm not a politician i'm just speaking from my experience but from my experience i think um people in in that part of ireland were just completely battle weary and i don't know the the sort of like you know the strategic or tattle tactical angle from you know, uh, the IRA or the Army Council or, or thing like that. You know, I, I don't. But uh, there, there's a realisation that um, the political path or a peaceful process uh, would have to be the way forward. And I think this, I mean, it, it's a spooky thing because just, what, three months ago or in, in August, I'd done a play about the Falklands War in Jerusalem, in Israel. And the people that we were there and came to see us and that, nearly all of the, the audience was veterans. 
But all they were seeking at the time, and a lot of them had done multiple operations, multiple war fighting roles. Some of them, like were were older work, were in the Six Day War, in the recent Lebanon Wars, in the eighties Lebanon Wars, and all they wanted was resolution, and to get that generation. And you, you need generations to pass through where talking is the mo, the modus operandi for getting things to happen rather than fighting. And I think when you it's your own people, that's that's got to be fundamental because uh, it's just survivability for for human beings. What was the the play that you did on the Falklands? It wasn't Welcome Home by Tony Marchant, was it? No, no, it was called Minefield by Lola Arias, and it's she's an Argentinian playwright. And the play was first conceived. It had three Falkland uh, War veterans and three Malvinas War veterans, and I joined because uh, Lou Armour, who's you know a legend who who I knew or grew up when I joined, obviously after, but I knew him in the core. He was an incredible guy. He decided he wasn't didn't want to be part of the, the play anymore, and they were coming up for the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War, and uh, they were going to be performing in Buenos Aires over that period, and he couldn't do it. So they put uh, they reached out for you know. And spoke to me. He said, "Look, you're you're a veteran. You're a former Royal Marines commander." I said, "Well, I wasn't in the Falklands. I joined you in the Marines after the Falklands." He said, "Well, we don't really want another veteran, but we want somebody who can act and and you know do it. I played sort of multiple roles as part of the ensemble, in as well as playing the character of of Lou in the play. And I did that in Buenos Aires uh, for five or six weeks last year in uh, 2022." And then this year we took it to Israel. But before that, when Lou was part of the part of the gang, they they've done world tour. They've been there. They've been in the West End. You know, it's been a, it's a very successful play. But I have to admit, it's an issue when I go into. I had six days to from rehearsals from London to Argentina. There's a script. Uh, you've got six days, and then we're opening uh, to the it was a deputy deputy president of Argentina, the British ambassador, the U.S. ambassador, Japanese ambassador, German ambassador. That was the opening night. The thousand seaters uh, uh, stayed at the uh, Teatro San Martin in Buenos Aires. Uh, it's incredible, an incredible atmosphere, incredible people, and an incredibly strong play. And up at that stage, because obviously half the play is in English and half is in Spanish. And obviously, I was listening to guys, and I, I do a little bit of Spanish, and I still got to understand. You know, the the, the, the you know you could I could you could tell Ruben like was was on the in the Belgrano when it was sunk. You know, and I could, I could, you know, you could, I could snippet it, and then, but whilst I'm looking out at the audience during the dress rehearsals, the director said, "Just, just have a look, have a look, and uh, you know, just read the story, so you, you fully got it." So I, I, instead of being playing my part, I would look, look and read it, and they were, they were, absolutely, you know, what I mean, they were, you know, just hit me, emotionally, just hit me straight away how raw it was and how positive these three men were considering what they'd been through as conscripts in the in the, in the Malvinas Falklands War, the Malvinas War, and what they went through the whole the, where they, that point in time where they were on stage now. And I still feel like they are like brothers to me, as are, you know, my other the other two, like uh with uh, a Gurkha and another former Old Marine with us and incredible guys. And then when we do, because every once in a while the play gets stood up and I I get really excited just to meet them all again and their families and everyone else. So it's, yeah, it just shows you how a strong play like that, which is purely about the whole 
choreographically goes through the battle for the, you know, the Fortress of Malvinas, and it tells tales of stories from each of these individuals piecing together the actual battle and how reconciliation was so important and how close they are. And the bond on stage is really, really obvious. And it's things out there. I think that's why it landed so well in Israel and how, especially the way things are happening in the world at the minute, I think it's the, the importance of that play and reconciliation will be enduring. And even though it's a play set 40 years ago, because these are individual, real-life people that have now worked together, their, their story is the important thing that just, you know, when you get past it, just realise that it is human beings that, 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 that are on the opposite side. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's, he's American, but he's Palestinian. His, his, both his parents yeah. are Palestinian. He's an amazing humanitarian. Before this all blew up, he was in Syria and Greece and Turkey and, you know, helping rescue migrants and, and being in um, immigration camps and all these things. Just a beautiful human being. And he was just telling me, you know, regardless of, of whatever's, you know, the, anyone's perception of right, wrong, whatever it is, the horrors that are going on there at the moment for people that live there that are being shelled um, is absolutely horrific. And and I've talked about this a lot. What kills me is that every single time, if you look back from slavery to the genocide, I mean, you name it, it's a tyrannical few people that then oppress you know, the masses. And then ultimately, soldiers of one country have to take up arms, forced or voluntary, and then they go kill or try and kill people at the same age of them that happen to be born on a different, you know, island or piece of land. And I I wonder like how how can we finally learn so many lessons from history and nip it in the bud before it happens? This division, this nastiness, this you know, lust for greed and power that a few people have that send so many of our children off to war. Uh it's it's a bizarre thing. And I Obviously, I'm I'm a product of everything that you said there in a lot of ways, not only growing up, but deployed in operations. And I have to say, you know, and it, this, if we're looking at the strategic thing, I, can, can it end? I think it will end. I think technology is pushing the thing. It's, what, I, what we've got to understand is what's happening today has always been the way it happened, has been the way, you know, I mean, it's just now... We've got cameras that are documented it second by second, what's happening. And and to be honest, that's that I think that's incredible. But what I don't want ever to see the people think that it's because it's so much of it, so it's so prevalent and there's so many images seen that it it blunts the trauma of what those people have gone through and what you know what what their lives are about. So I you know, I I, I don't it's important that we keep keep the currency. And I also the devil in the the media as well is 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 the is the blame culture, you know what I mean? And that's that to me, and it's very 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 hard. I mean, I'm I, I was forever you know a you know a supporter of the BBC and everything else now, but I'm struggling even now with with that you know that just tell the story what has happened and it's. It, and there's so much, you know, that's mean because of the power of those media outlets now, both right wing and left wing, or or media, whatever, they've all, all got their own viewpoints. They've all got their storyline, and that's that's a struggle because that creates more tribes of support and waves of more for either side. The trauma is still going to happen, and and it is, but it, it, it's a weird, weird thing that I remember saying, like you know. 
the talking has to happen, but it'll take two generations. Things that are going on now in Ukraine and in Gaza, that's going to be more, it's going to be generations, but that could be even longer than that because, you know what I mean, that has been felt by every single family, you know what I mean, in Gaza and a hell of a lot of families in Israel as well and in Ukraine and Russia. And I'm like, oh, so that, that's going to stay for, for people's lifetimes. I might not even be generations. We're talking about like full generations. So we're talking like, you know, you know, you know, maybe 50 years at least, if there was no engagement for for this to even filter through where people can like look at each other and talk and go, you're not to blame. At the minute, the sort of main players on both sides have still got, you know, have still got, they're still tainted from their past of what they've been involved in and that'll be enduring. So I don't think until we get a, a generation that hasn't been, um, shall we say, hasn't taken lives uh, from an opposing side that they're still challenging with, I think that's the only time that the people can, will will morally feel right they can talk about it. I and, agree and with you. I say, but I can't, I can't, I can't say that War is going to end. I don't. I think technology is getting such a heightened stage that the 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 term of a fair fight is never going to be the case now. Never going to be the case. And it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, you always have to be thoroughly and well drilled and professionally trained as a soldier. And the more professionally trained you are, you know, what I mean, the more effective you're going to be, and also your your survivability rate is probably going to be better. But I'd say now, because the text moved on in such binds that. You could be the, the, the physically most robust, hardest, you know what I mean, sharp, intelligent soldier in the world, but it's not. It ends in a nanosecond and it's done you know, through technology, which is unseen. So I think technology may bring it to the stage where it's, you know what I mean, it's machine against machine type scenario. There's still going to be human beings that were lost lives and still going to be innocent lives that are going to be completely underneath it and in the middle of it. But... Currently, and and this is another one which maybe maybe think that currently there are threats to the freedoms that I fought for, and the freedoms that I want my family to endure and love for the rest of their lives and the rest of my grandchildren's lives and and after that, there are threats out there where we still need to have the ability where human beings are able to move forward and deliver lethality in whatever respect as surgically as possible is, you know, completely right, but we still have to operate. And there's still that requirement. And until I think we feel that our freedoms are not, are not threatened, that in some way we, we have to maintain. That capability doesn't need to be massive, but it still needs that. And it still has to be survivability. And also if you, if you leapfrog up into the biggest state players and the volatility at the minute in like, you know, I mean, you know, in the big countries like like Russia, like China, uh, North Korea, with all these capabilities, it's the volatility and it's also those freedoms that their state do not have whatsoever. So you can't, it's just, that's it. Never, not aggression, and I wouldn't say aggression, and not revenge either, which, you know, some people might say, but I think we need to have that ability and we still need to influence and and make sure that those cultures and freedoms that we have are maintained. Yeah, I agree. And thank you for your perspective. I know we got very philosophical early in the conversation, yeah. but but it's it's an important 
it's an important conversation. I just went home to uh, take care of my dad a couple of weeks ago in, in England. And I was there for a Remembrance Sunday, Remembrance Weekend. Yeah. And one of my friends had just retired from London Transport Police in the armed division. And uh, um, the the way the BBC was portraying that was there was going to be this um, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. protest, you know, of a march of Palestinians. And, and the way they were projecting it was basically the police aren't ready and all these Palestinian people are going to kick off and it's going to be an absolute nightmare. And neither happened. The police were ready. According to my friend, there were a few isolated arrests that, you know, people were taken care of immediately and everyone else. It was a peaceful protest. And I understand now, having spoken to one of the most revered journalists that we've had in the U.S., and he was talking about how we devolved our our news by the companies that once owned them saying, all right, now you need to make money. So it went from news to trying to keep you hooked on a news story so they can sell, you know, the drug, whatever, you know, drug company. The advertising, the advertising term, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not about news. It's about advertising. It's about making money. But the BBC is television license. So that's what really disappoints me because they don't really don't have an excuse to have deviated from what I always remember. And I used to talk about all the time is middle of the road. Here's what happened. No opinions. No, you know, yeah. just this is what happened today. And I, I think for the last, I think the last five years, it, it's been that there's like um, it's like a social push for for you know what I mean. It's it's not it's, it's yeah to me I they've definitely deviated and they've got a a new. I mean it's not it's not not conspiracy or anything. It's just prevalent. You I mean it's like ah I mean when I was in OP sitting up a mountain in Norway or or on operations, we would t- tune in and listen to BBC World Service because that would give us exactly truthfully what was happening in the world and now i will listen to stuff which is no prevalence or relevance to to you know what i mean what i need to know but it's yeah so i, I it, but again i'm not here to judge the bbc i'm just saying i need some fair journalism that used to be what i listened to i can't now so that's the way i have to move on and listen to you know other things or which I don't like because it's just, it's time, isn't it? Time is, is, is time is money and things like that. But you have to listen to multiple feeds to get a to do a section average. You go right. That must be really what's happening. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think just one more thing, and then we'll we'll move on. Someone said to me recently, and it was it was such a profound statement. They were, they said people are looking at America because we are the advert for democracy. And he goes, "What do you think they're thinking at the moment?" So for me, the safety and security of this country, the happiness of the American people is centered around real democracy. People feeling like their vote counts, people feeling mostly that we're being pulled together, that we're a giant community. But we're seeing the opposite from both sides here, both media stations. You know, it's a complete division. So we've got to understand that if we don't fight to get the BBC back to where it should be, if you don't fight to get our news networks to actually tell news again, and stop putting fear and you know conspiracy theory, whatever it is, out into the public. We are getting divided and conquered. Therefore, the Russias, the North Koreas, the Chinas of the world are wringing their hands, going, "Oh, sweet, they used to be quite strong, but now they're getting fat. Now they're you know addicted yeah. to opiates. Now, I mean, all these things are happening, and that's a national security issue too. So this isn't a political conversation. It's a uh, you know, I think." When I, for example, had a lot of conversations with some very intelligent people like you that have been around the world and have seen the highs and the lows and tell it, you know, from the soldier's eyes or, the, you know, whatever field they're in, 
you start to see again these commonalities, this middle ground. You're like, this this is not good. We are we are getting more vulnerable. We are getting you know becoming less of a community, more set against ourselves. So you know this whole conversation, I think, is about the well-being of the British people, the Australian people, the American Canadian, yeah. you know, and everyone else who's being kind of set upon by their media outlets and some of their politicians. Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely think that, which is quite a, a surreal circle, like full circle in one way, is is, and sometimes it really, it does, burn in me quite a bit. It's just. If you look at those old images of people in the trenches in the Second World War in Korea and that they're again still in wars fighting other human beings, but fighting for what we believe was that freedom and possibly maybe those freedoms and our you know our wish to, to make it make freedoms as free and as free as they could possibly free be means that then you create an environment of 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 obesity, of of you know what I mean, of of no duty, no requirement, no blame, no this, you know that, because it's you know that freedom and, and maybe but again it's one of those things once the horse is bolted, you'll never get it back. So it's just that evolution. We've got to get back onto some sort of evolutionary path where human beings in our cultures feel that they are responsible for every day they've got on this planet and for the people in the community they live in. To give it its best and give it a shout, but that I think is just going to be so so hard to do with our, so we say our addiction to social media, to our addiction to, and and it's another thing as well. I, I spoke about it before: is our addiction to social media, but also that reverence held for uh, people on TV, not not TV, just like on that on that spectrum, whether it be a computer screen or a phone screen or anything. There's people that that. They, they hero worship these super thin, one brick thin, no depth, sort of like, you know, in fact, I'd, I'd say that even though they're human beings, they're like AI, they're like sort of created things, whereas, and people revere them, even though they don't know them personally, they've never, they've never sat in a trench with them, they've never done a hard day's work, they've never been on a pump with them, they've never done this, never that, all I'm saying is, that's it, so that's, they revere them purely because, because it's, it's a fashion, it's a trend. You know what I mean? And that, that I find it hard. Whereas when we grew up and we never had digital media, we never had that. You know, we maybe had a few Hollywood heroes like on a horse or something like that or on a motorbike. But it was always, you looked up to people because you looked at them, you worked with them and you said, and I used to, I mean, I did, because you take a little bit of everybody you meet in your life and you're going, he's good. I like him. That's it. And I was going, oh, she's that, she's wonderful. She's that, I know. You know what I mean? She's sharp. She's good. You know what I mean? You, you pick things from people, all these different people, and you pull them into your, into your armory and that that helps evolve you as a human being. You're still always yourself, but you need these little good things, especially when people are good tech or the way they manage people. I just you know, you see it all the time. You follow good people, but not bad people. But you knew them because you work with them. You knew the work ethos. You you socialize with them. So you knew whether you've seen the dark side of them or the you know the good side or the funny side. You've seen everything. Whereas now you've just got this. If it's on that if it's on that square that screen, and there's a big following, that's good. And that that blows my mind. Absolutely. Here's us doing a podcast. I know, I know, but it is it's 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 using the beast for educating positivity, I think is very important. And not negativity. But and again, that's another thing. I don't want to go, right, everything's ooh, and we're the world's all gone down hell. It's it's not like that. I'm just saying that 
for me in my sort of like my sort of like life sort of um journey getting to this point here it's just leaving a lot of um worries because it's changed so much in such a short piece of time space of time it's that worry it's that going well it's changed so much in the last like five ten years what's it going to be like in 20 years time and then we got you know everything else compounded on top global warming uh demand for power and everything else it's just it's, there's a there's a lot of issues that need resolved uh and there's no resolution happening at the minute mm-hmm. or not you know not not i'd say not um me- in a measured way anyway I think it's just, it's it's important for us to just realize what we've already got as well. I don't see a lot of gratitude. And again, this, like you said, this isn't a doom and gloom conversation. There's a lot of people that do get it. A lot of people that are out there doing incredible things in the world. But if we just go, ah, it's all right, ah, you know, then we are going to be so far behind it. So I think you know, these voices are important to just be, you know, grateful for all the things we have rather than bitching about what we don't have. But then also understanding that there's a trend there's a linear line you know between our health our mental health you know the security of the nation education whatever it is and that is going to have an impact if we don't intersect it you know it's like a missile heading towards your home country if someone doesn't knock it off course eventually it's going to blow up so yeah and i think the the main word you said there was education it's just that education and i think in those formative years for young people that they get it and like say so many of them do but there's there's still a and this is this is the, the worrying thing. What we used to call a working class people, whatever else out there, they're still in that low education bubble. And then again, they they're not going to have those opportunities. So they're they're especially in the, the sort of family cycle and that where they keep bounding around and everything else out there, they haven't broke out of that. So they they you know they see they see um you know like we say what we've lost from previous communities, they see what we they have now as the norm, you know what I mean? And that's it. And it's an endurance sort of thing. And they, they don't get, they don't feel there's a need to break the cycle. And that's an, I think that's just something that we should, education is the important thing to make sure they try and break it, you know, and, and education can be done so many different ways, but you know, I mean, it, it, it's given them the appetite to want to break the mold or want to move forward with, with humanity. Absolutely. Well, going back to your journey, speaking of education, you ended up in the Royal Marines. Is that what you were dreaming of when you were in school, or was there something else before that? Oh no, that's that's all I ever wanted to be. I tried to join the Royal Marines when I was seven years old, uh, but because I seen an advert in the newspapers, which is a bit bizarre, sent it away from from Belfast. Uh, they they sent me the pack back, but uh, I was a bit young to join at the time, so that's what I wanted to do. And when I got my exam results, I picked them up, went straight down discreetly to the careers office and joined up. And I was a junior at the time, so I had to get um, a witness to sign it. So, which was, and my parents to sign it. And I hadn't spoke to my parents about what, I did speak to my dad when I was young, but he said, "Uh, you'll grow out of it. But (laughs) I didn't. And, uh, and that, although finally did sign the forms initially, he was like, I don't want son of mine joining the commandos. And, you know, and you think about it at the time, it was like, you know, mid eighties, um, the 85 actually when I joined up and they are, you went and signed on the, the dotted line. And, uh, that's a mega brief show for, cause they did sign the forms for me, but that was an extremely brave shout. Um, 
coming from from my background and and I've got a lovely family a lovely wider family as well but it's uh but these are people with completely different like you know political and and like natural sort of like a national sort of like identity you know what I mean and and I and I won't knock them for it because that that was you know what I mean you know there there's reason for 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 that at the time but I I was allowed to make my decision and make my point and do what I did and I it's I mean, if you, I mean, you know the score. To become a Royal Marines commander is not a, oh yeah, I'm just going to join up and it'll happen. It's, it's, it's a, it's a tasty little number to do, and, you know that that's all I wanted to do, so I had to do it. But I had to be very discreet. No, never told anyone, uh, and did it. I think it was just only one friend I told who later joined later and later year, year after joined the the Royal Air Force. But generally, you know, I didn't tell anyone, and I went off. On the adventure, it was the Royal Marines, and that was. And I think the only thing I would say for for young people that do want to aspire, you know, to do something, and I have to make because every everything that's ever happened on the planet, done by human beings, they're human beings. So the fact is that everything on this planet, you can do. You know what I mean, you know, you can do. You can do it to the best of your heart's content. You can do it, but you've got to just focus on it. And and get amongst it and just do it, and I was very privileged and allowed because I you know my forms were signed and I can do it. So I went off and became a Royal Marines commando. And as soon as I joined her, the intensity and the arduous nature of of training just I was at home. I was in pure heaven. It was just I was at uh, yeah <laughs> like thirty thirty seven and a half years later. I'm going. Yeah, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was magical. You know, and I, I was so lucky to be part of such an unbelievable gang of people. And I I still am, really. I will be. I mean, once it's you know, once a Royal Marine, always a Royal Marine. And in the States, they say once a Marine, always a Marine. But for me, you know, that that's it. I'm, I'm from with a, with a gang of people that I sort of joined the Corps with. And we will be friends, well, while we're still on this on this earth. But what we've, especially you know, you know, some of some of the friends, what what we've been through is is all those highs and lows, and in battle losing friends, lots uh, of traumatic injuries, you know, overcomers, survivors, we've lost friends through suicide, so we've all been through a journey, and our families have suffered in the background, you know, not in the background, but on the home front. While this has all been happening, so they're part of that, our bigger family as well. So, yeah, it's been a, I've been a very, very lucky man uh, to have had the career that I did and also to have survived it. So I feel, again, greatly privileged. I feel the same way about the fire service, you know, but I don't call myself a retired fire, firefighter, even though I'm not paid to do it anymore. I mean, I literally did CPR on a plane about two weeks ago and then responded to a crash <laughs> about three days ago. So, you know, as a civilian, but um, I got to kind of witness what you're talking about as well firsthand. I went to um, see Ben Wadham and Sam Sheriff in Plymouth in Reorg. Um, at Ben's yeah. gym, ended up rolling. When I say rolling, getting murdered by Sam for a bit. Yeah. Um, and then Junior was rolling with him as well. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was, I was, I was had coffee with Junior the other day, actually. Yeah, he's a brilliant yeah. bloke. 
brilliant so but i got to see that and it was beautiful that little area and there were people you know obviously quite young marines coming through and i'm probably you know men that you serve with and they were all cycling yeah. through the cafeteria and and it was phenomenal but i think that's that was so um inspiring to watch because they created a place no matter whether you're actually wearing yeah. the uniform or if you transitioned out to still feel like you're part of the core no Brazilian jiu-jitsu is it's a it's a massive attraction it's such a wonderful attraction for veterans to keep them stay involved stay stay in the community well you stay in the community anyway but that that gives that a physicality that I think the bootnecks need you know what I mean I'm firefighters as well I mean it's just that you know it's our yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a good because fizz is so important. Yeah, I think you know when you leave service, you've got to keep that mindset and that sense of purpose, it's physicality and doing that, you know, intimately or whatever, and mobility and endurance will keep you. It'll give you longevity as well because again, if you stagnate, then you know it's 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 the wrong thing to do. It's bad for you. I've heard you talk a couple times now, and each time you seem to be the same way that I am, acknowledging all the trauma of your service, seeing men and women, you know, in your case, men, in my case, men and women um, around you that are really, really struggled, some of whom, you know, are not here anymore, some of whom, thank God, were saved from a suicide attempt and, you know, are here to tell the tale. And when I look back and analyze why was I not there sitting, you know, with a bottle of scotch and a, and a pistol, um, the only thing that I can think of is even though I had trauma when I was younger, certain things, just by pure luck, I grew up on a farm. I grew up, my dad's a veterinary surgeon, so I was around animals. You know, He was healing. Um, there were people of all colors and creeds coming through our farmhouse all the time. So there were so many positive coping mechanisms that we identify now, You know, from animals to time in nature, et cetera, et cetera. So I can hypothesize, okay, well, I was just so fortunate to have equal and opposing coping you know mechanisms inbuilt to my childhood that it allowed me to process that trauma and it became a strength a lot of people that have come on the show who were really 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 struggling a lot of their childhood was was traumatic and they didn't necessarily process it they just you know shoved it down when you look at your journey i mean you know 30 plus years you know in in royal marines and reserves um and you grew up in Belfast during the Troubles, what do you identify were the elements that allowed you to foster resilience when some of your fellow Marines you know, didn't have that strong foundation when they entered the profession? I mean, I, I wouldn't say they didn't have a strong foundation. I think um, there's a certain level of conditioning that happens when you, when you become a Royal Marines commando. But leading up to that, I think uh, family life, and community life and the troubles and the the systematic sort of like security um routine or regime that happened in in Northern Ireland was it it sort of it puts you in this sort of, and again being in a a Catholic uh all boys primary school, Christian Brothers primary school, and then I uh, went to St. Malachy's College, which is a uh was a priest seminary college as well, uh, but an all boys grammar school. And I went I went to that and I no matter what we say, it's very, uh, even though it's not, because, you know, it, they're schools, but quite militaristic. And you, you, you're you conditioned from an early age, I think. And I was an altar boy as well. So I was an altar boy. So you're you're part of the Catholic Church and that. 
is militaristic in a, in a way as well. So, you know, maybe the condition happened. Maybe there's not as much conditioning uh, for the younger members that were coming in, but for people of my age group, and we were, I think we were a lot more, we had a lot more, say, common sense, I'd say, when we joined up and less uh, academic awareness. You know what I mean? Our intellect, I think, was, you know, it's in our genes or it's, it was in, maybe from our conditioning coming from from big cities or from, from islands off Scotland or or whatever. You've got that unique, uh, in your formative years, you have to be, you know, have, a, have to be a bit of a scrapper, a bit of a, have a survivability factor in that. Whereas nowadays, uh, you'll get a lot of um, uh, younger men that are joining the core, which even in the early stages are not as physically robust because they haven't spent as much time outside now. And I'm not saying that's, that's across the board. And, you know, of course we get people that, you know, have grown up in families where they were, you know, lived their lives on mountains or, you know, running hills or swimming in sea or surfing. But we still get, we still get a lot of people from inner cities that grew up maybe playing PlayStation games and their idea of being a Royal Marines commando is watching, you know, Call of Duty or playing Call of Duty, which is really, really not like, <laughs> well, I mean, no, it's it's not. It's not. And I'm not a Call of Duty player, but but you know, I I do not look at game as it, but it's it's you know, we, we get a lot of people doing that. So you have to sort of like start their physical conditioning through their journey to become a Royal Marines commando in a in a very different way. Whereas ours was you join and it was shock of capture and it was you joining the Royal Marines. It wasn't it wasn't the Royal Marines trying to get you to join. It was you scratching to be in the Royal Marines. So you, you'd you give 100% your whole heart, but at any stage you could have like been thrown, you know, I mean, yeah, sorry, no longer required. Whereas across the whole of the armed forces now, it's very much a, you know, they're actually, you know, tightened for business continually. They're, they're selling their souls. They go, right, come and join us, come and join us, come and join us. You know what I mean? And they're, I think the, let's just say the, uh, the rigid sort of training regimes that, that we, we did when we joined are a lot more, shall we say, user friendly. Still effective, still a tester, still all, you know, everything else, but it's it's definitely a, a, a different sort of regime. That possibly, and society as well. Society is a very different society. Uh, and that does open open your eyes when you go on operations, you know, being able to adapt to things that are, you know, you've possibly came across when you were younger and You've overcome it through your family and everything else and that. But a lot of things that, that came apparent with me, uh, with my friends or people like colleagues I knew that, that were struggling, a lot of it did stem from childhood years, whereas what happened on operations, or you know, when you've a traumatic scenario, when you was a firefighter, it must have been, you know, I mean, incredibly, incredibly sad and traumatic scenes. But they were like triggers, but it sort of dra- dragged up. Other issues deeper in the childhood, and that was, you know, that that's been a a very very common factor, and people I've spoken spoken with when they when they they said about it. So I, I can't. There's no blame for it. I just think the the ardu- the less arduous nature of life, which again we've we've made, um, makes uh, certain. It, it is. It makes certain people less. No, but I can't. I can't. Even some of my friends that committed suicide, I can't, I can't say it. I wouldn't say that they're less strong or anything else than that. But for me, it's always been when things happen. And I, I think it's when I come into my acting, the reason I understand it. Whilst I was going through maybe a growth going, going up in Belfast and then joining the Royal Marines. And I've said this before in a in a chat before, I think we build up a, a, um, 
I subconsciously have built up a protection to my emotion. You know I mean, my emotional sort of, you know, regime. So you sort of build it up. It's like, you know, you have to, you have to resist because you can, you know, you've, you've had, you know, I mean, things have been tricky and then you move into sort of like things are extremely hard and then operations then you're going to lose. So you, you build this up and that, that resistance you build up helps you massively. I think, especially longevity wise, the time I was in the Royal Marines and the things that I'd done helped me get through it, you know, relatively stable. But my friends that I've struggled with it, they seem to, when I came across new traumatic scenarios and you lost people, there was a certain surrealism of it. It didn't, you know, it. it's still now even seems quite surreal, even though you know your mates are dead, you know that they're buried and gone and everything else in that door, but you still got that, my, are they, you know what I mean? It's, it's weird, it's very, to me, and it's it's something I always, you know, I, meant to say, I always still visit my friends now and just like have a chat with them, when, especially when I'm doing, you know, active stuff, because they, I feel quite emotional thinking about them, but I like, you know, I need that. I need those emotions, so I go and speak to them, and just say, mm, "I need you today, lads." And it just it sort of comes because their memories come, and I don't want ever to dampen that or make it. Oh, I'll just call on my mates today. I can't because it's too precious. They're too wonderful, and their memories are too wonderful. So it's one of those things where the resistance built up, and we do what we do, and we see traumatic things and carry on with it, but. I still think back and I do have a few tearful moments. I'm not saying I don't. And a few of my mates will say this as well. And we've had a, a few times where we were out climbing in Switzerland. We had a hard week and we came down. And we, me and one of my mates, Steph, pulled out a crate of beer. And we put a tune on and the tune went on. And it was just the opening chords of the tune. Just, it just made me go emotional. And it was just, pulling, you know, and I, and I looked into his eyes and we were sitting there and the two of us are, and he just knew straight away what it was. He was up. Like, don't worry, mate. Don't worry. Crack a beer. And that was it. And that was, you know, that understanding of having a friend to go, you're all right, mate. And that was it. And and I'd spoke to a couple of other friends who'd be down the Falklands and they said that they had moments like this. And I didn't. I was thinking, you know, I, I don't think I'll have that. But it was just something. It was just, just a tune or something. And it just made it, made it come back to me. So I, the reason I see it, I, I've... I have got over it and overcome it, but I'll never forget mates. But realizing that I have overcome it and I will have emotional moments means that I'm not stuck on the timeline. Whereas my friends that I feel that my friends have taken their own lives, my friends that really struggle with things is that they can't get away from that point in time or that moment. So it's like, you know, instead of, you know, they're stuck on that date and that timeline, life just moves on. And they, they, they can't, they, they try to get away from it, but it just, they're struggling with it. And it's just anything I can maybe assist them with, especially in the arts nowadays, is just to get them to move away from that and just get that timeline moving again and look forward and not, and not back, but not forgetting, never forgetting those wonderful, wonderful people that, were, that we had to work with. Well, when I said the, you know, the, the, the foundation, it's not, a weakness it's not something anyone's um, aware of it's that unaddressed stuff and a lot of a lot of people on the show you know they were small when whatever happened in the household whether it's sexual abuse or you know growing up around domestic violence you know whatever it was so they go in with all the best intentions unaware of some of the fragility inside and it's not that they're not warriors it's just this kind of yeah. 
elements. So then, you know, you add all these other compounding factors, you know, of, of, of service and, you know, maybe even organizational betrayal. I mean, I mean you know, whatever factors yeah. in, some of them, they just get to that critical mass and everything starts collapsing. And what's so sad, and I've learned this from so many people now, you know, there used to be our generation, this kind of conversation that suicide was cowardly and selfish. And and you realize when you hear stories from people that were right there, I've had two that survived their suicide attempt, you know, in the moment they they began it, they immediately had regret, but it's because it snapped them out. But that brain by that point is so miswired that they think that is the selfless way of you know removing themselves because they're a burden to their you know fellow marines they're a burden to their wife to their children which makes no sense to a healthy brain makes perfect sense to a to a broken brain so this is what's so sad is no one you know no one who who gets to that point of crisis is air quotes a pussy quite the opposite you know you wouldn't belittle someone who whose femur was sticking out the side of their leg you know but like, fucking hell you just broke your leg but yeah. when it comes to that mental injury that injury to the point of completely changing their reality it's you know we've got to show compassion and the reason why i asked you that was another part of the conversation is some people are, are doing okay they're coping so it's up to us to then say all right what was it why why i mean we're no different we are as you said human beings why am i able to cope this amount and my friend took his own life or took her own life and so trying to impart some of that too because if we're not struggling that means we're the ones that need to raise our friends up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's even like you know, as you were as you were saying, I was saying those words, which I f- I fully agree with. I fully agree with. Is um, I remember some of my friends there, and they were, you know, when when you were you know mega friendly with them, they were pot company, or they left left the core or whatever else, not. But some some of the guys, or a couple of the guys, I met not long before they took their own life and and I didn't ping it I didn't I didn't it didn't I didn't grab it and I'm thinking I look back and think was there something and, I, and that's what why it's it's so it's harder especially when you remember those fond times know you were smiling or you're sharing a beer or 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 sharing a you know uh, a foxhole or you know a shell scrape together and you like and you have that little giggling sort of smile and, and, and chuckle when you're in you know that 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 dark humor in the face of adversity, and you you look in their eyes and you thought, you know, that's it. And even if you could just get that moment back, and and then, but you you could say, you know, completely straight eye to eye with no no pretense or nothing. Just go right, you know, are you okay? And that would always, you know, they'd, they'd be straight. It would be it'd be compassionate, and just just to have that opportunity to say, you're all right, mate. If you're not, you know, thing of that. And it's just that's the big thing. It's sort of gets you when when they do you and you've seen them recently you just go on well you know it, it, it's just what yeah you know, like oh, why didn't they or you know oh, have I never met made him feel comfortable enough for him to say so surely he knows I'm the sort of person that would listen and yeah yeah I mean it's hard and I've even had people explain it that mentally you have fight flight um flow or freeze flow is one I was missing and freeze that's that's almost like the kind of deer in the headlights and then there's almost an acceptance then if you think about it the deer has basically made peace with the fact it's going to get run over by a car and so that is why sometimes i hear people say they they seemed happier than i'd seen them in months or years Ah. a few days before so to try and kind of alleviate some of that guilt 
sometimes they've already made peace with it. Now, maybe if you looked at them and said, you know, are you okay? No, no, no. Are you really okay? And I think yeah. the second question is really important. Maybe it would snap out of them. But maybe in that in their mind, they'd already just made that decision and they were just kind of, you know, tying up loose ends, deliberately coming to see you yeah. because they were they knew what was going to come. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll take that as a, a, you know, a little in my pocket for that one because that, that's something that I think, and I, yeah, I'll definitely take that one as well just to use, you know what I mean? And, and when we do, it's it's worth I think just and it discreetly rather than the old right. I must say blah blah blah. It's the old right. Yeah, look me, pucker Jen. Just tell me the truth. You know what I mean? How's it going? And if you are, if you're feeling that bad, you need to speak to me. You need to offload with me, and that's it. So, yeah, I'm definitely I'm taking that one because, like I said, it's it's still extremely prevalent in you know in in my peer group and and people that have been been deployed in operations. Absolutely. Well, here in America, we lose twice as many firefighters and police officers to suicide than we do yeah. what we call line of duty deaths, you know, all the things that yeah. kill us in uniform. So I want to get back to Northern Ireland then. So now you're wearing a Royal Marine uniform. You go back to your home city. What was that kind of transition, that experience like for you? You know, one minute you're you know, seeing soldiers in your city. Now you're one of those soldiers or Marines in this case. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't exactly in my, my city at the time, but, and I guess I, 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 I want to say, you know, what, what I've done or what for, but obviously jobs, you know, what I've done out there, it was, it, I didn't know. I mean, I was, I was in a group of, of Royal Marines commandos who we were doing our job. Uh, I seen it as a completely a peace support job protecting Irish people from Irish people, basically, and and you know, and, and my my comrades, and that's why I deployed because I think it would be hard, and I never told my family I deployed either. So I'd done four tours in Ireland, and I never told my family because, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't their burden. You know what I mean? But for me, it was I had to go because I was protecting my my friends, but also I was educating my friends. I was telling them what Ireland was about why it was where we were, why we had to do this. And also, you know, if professionally as well, just to make sure that they're focused on what we were doing. But I think that it was important they they understood the background of why um, different targets or different people, you know, we were, we were working against, why why they felt the way they were doing. Because again, they're, they're human beings, but not only the human beings, they were, you know, they were, they were Irish human beings, whether they be, you know, loyalist terrorists or loyalist, you know, should we say volunteers or uh, Republican terrorists or Republican freedom fighters. I mean, that's an, it's another thing because remember the old, you said about 9-11, like when 9-11 happened, they said, oh, right, it's terrorism. And straight away it's terrorism, but it's the old, it's very, very hard to, uh, it is like one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter. French resistance, terrorists, freedom fighters. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just so, so many different things. I mean, yeah, I, I, for me, it was education and peace support and being professional. And I think those uh, professional uh, soldiers and Marines that worked out in, in Northern Ireland, um, they learned valuable, valuable lessons in their trade 
in that environment because the the people they were up against were probably the most, I'd say, cunning and covert uh, operators on the planet, I think. You know what I mean? And, they, and that's what, whatever side they were following, but they were their ability to... Um, you know, basically to deliver operations, you know, both in UK uh, and in in Ireland was, you know, I mean, yeah, it was it was pretty magical. I mean, it, it's not there's no, there was no battlefield win, but it was the skills learned there put us in really good stead for future operations in, I'd say, Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, and definitely I'd say in Iraq as well. And it was by the time we came to Iraq. A lot of the it was only the senior people that had maybe deployed in in Northern Ireland, so they still had that understanding of of patrolling in multiples in built up areas, looking at uh, you know all the MOs or the TTPs that the enemy would be using. A lot of them weren't, weren't they were it was far far more intense, I would say, but but the TTPs were were similar. And I think if you're if you're refined and professional in Northern Ireland. It would make it uh, you, you'd be such a small, more competent operator, I think, in any of the other environments. When you talk about educating some of the other Marines on the backstory behind the conflict in your home country, it reminds me of a police officer I had, Nick Colt, and uh, he was a little boy. The local um, Orlando and Orange County police um, were surrounding his house because someone had basically done like a home invasion. Um, and then there was miscommunication, mistakes were made. Um, it went from, I think, Orange County to Orlando. Yeah. So when, when, you know, they'd been there for X amount of hours, they, they passed on to the city. Um, the lady, the, the, the hostage taker ordered food. They sent a pizza in. The mother was told to go out to the garage and get it. And the sniper shot her, killed her, Nick's mother. And Nick became a police officer because he wanted to make sure that that never happened to someone else's mother. And it kind of reminds me the same thing that you put yourself in uniform so you could, as you said, protect, protect the good people of Ireland and try and mitigate some of the violence. Yeah. I mean, and that is it. That is completely it. I I never, you know, that that, it's my Island, isn't it? It's my Island. And I didn't, I didn't go there to prosecute any politics purely to save lives and help people. And uh, hopefully I did that. Well, you mentioned Kosovo then. So, you know, when I'm thinking about post Falklands, I was literally, I got it was 82, wasn't it? So I was six. Is that right? No, eight. I was eight when the Falklands happened. Um, so then, you know, we have the the kind of Eastern European conflicts kick off next. Um, you you weren't, you know, you, you joined after the Falklands. So Northern Ireland, as you said, was your kind of training ground as well. Talk to me about getting to Kosovo Um and then the the kind of backstory, because I mean, a lot of people listening probably are unaware of of the again the sectarian elements to that conflict. Uh, well, uh, we um, the Brigade Three Commander Brigade were due to deploy in two thousand two thousand and one to Kosovo uh, to Pristina, and basically as as the holding ground, you know, the brigade headquarters would be working in in just outside uh, Pristina. And at this stage, obviously, the NATO force had gone in the year before and taken over Kosovo from, from Serbian uh, sort of influences due to um, the conflict or the, 
you know, shall we say the suppression of the mostly Albanian, uh, of, you know, so Albanian, uh, Kosovan Albanians rather than and the Serbian Albanians are Serbian Kosovan Serbians as well, Serbian, uh, Kosovans as well. And, you know, it was very much sectarian divide. Um, and there was different areas. It was very, it was very, very similar to uh, maybe old school uh, Northern Ireland as as it was, and the way the areas w- were split up, and also the the Kosovans that the Kosovan sort of forces that had now ste- stepped up um, were now the sort of like um, local paramilitary sort of like forces supporting the NATO troops to you know secure and police the area. Um, but we got involved. I was in a I was just team commander in the brigade patrol troop which is uh which was like uh, an evolution of the might not warfare cadre which was in the falklands and it was now called the brigade patrol troop which uh and it was the early stages of being called the brigade reconnaissance force and three commander brigade brigade reconnaissance force was this sort of like uh the model or design that the other brigades would follow when the we went on to further operations after 9-11 so we had a, a group of Mostly Royal Marines, but we had combat, our commando engineers and commando forward air controllers with this as well. But generally, we were working in a what we would call a uh, a close observation type role, uh, reactive role. So we were doing surveillance of targets, both Serbian, uh, Kosovan, uh, Albanian, Kosovan, and uh, also a lot of criminal activity as well. Because that was, you know, it was one of those, you know, that that sort of void of of proper police authority had left that 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 loop where people could sort of influence a hell of a lot of things, and uh, there's a lot of criminal elements linked into the different sort of like paramilitary organisations that were happening over there, and but we've done some seriously good work over there, and I think as a small organisation we were really punching high above our weight. We were like. It was just we were really pushing forward with digital uh, imagery and technology, and we were getting some real good quality results, improvising uh, things and, and doing. We also done a few reactive ops uh, ambush ops. We got involved in quite uh, some serious ambush ops, getting triggered with some sources we had, and a few of them. Again, the ambushes themselves weren't triggered, so it wasn't like we were putting rounds down. But we uh, we captured quite a few people doing uh, illicit trade. Uh, and different bits and pieces rather than saying what, what we've done, but we, we captured quite a lot, quite a lot of people doing that. It was a very, very um, positive tour and we, uh, it was a very successful one for the, for the brigade patrol troop. And I think we proved our, you know, the last time we deployed in operations was in, after the first uh, Iraq war in, in uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, not not enduring freedom. It was in when they went into Kurdistan, uh, northern Iraq, after the first Gulf War. That was the last time, sort of the the, the first and last time the brigade patrol troop had had, uh, had deployed. So this is our first operational deployment. So, but then after Kosovo, we got back. I mean, the first job we done in Kosovo was quite a good one, actually. We we went in to secure a uh, a hotel, which was um, it was the it was a hotel belonging to the, one of the Serbian, high Serbian uh, politicians' cousins, and we had to secure it, secure him, and they were closing down a factory. And we'd been there three days, and I didn't got our ammunition yet, so we had to sort of throw everything together. 
disappeared in the back of a big lorry over the top of a mountain and ended up on our first task within like, you know, days. Uh, it, it didn't come, it wasn't fruitful. The, the factory did get closed down, but it did, uh, there was quite a lot of, uh, to we say, uh, a lot of it, because it was a Serbian enclave as well. So there's a lot of Serbian people were, were deeply upset about what was going on. But because of pollution and everything else, that had to be shut down. So we were securing the manager, securing the sort of management infrastructure. Uh, and then we got wrapped up in trying to just make sure that the Serbs never overrun the village. And yeah, it was, it was pretty, it's pretty hurry few hours we had. And uh, I think the lads proved it worth. It, it didn't, it didn't, it could have went traumatically wrong, but I think the uh, professionalism and the, the, um, the coolness of our, of our team saved the day for us. But that's just, that is definitely a story for another time. That is like, <laughs> Well, you touched on 9-11. So, you know, you've had these kind of urban conflicts up to this point. You know, like you mentioned, there was the first Gulf War, but that, you know, seemingly a lot of it was was an aerial attack in the first part. Um, talk to me about your personal experience of 9-11. You know, a lot of people that come on here that serve, whether they're in first responder uniforms or, or military, that was a very pivotal moment for them. But they were Americans. It was attack on America. What was your experience already wearing a Royal Marine uniform and being, um, you know, Northern Irish uh, slash British uh, Marine? Well, I was already, I was pretty seasoned by this stage. So I'd been in, what, 15 years. Yeah, so I'd, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd done quite a lot. I was a sergeant, team commander, still in brigade patrol troop. Uh, when the actual planes went into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, we were, we were live firing in wheels. So we were basically preparing to go to the Oman desert. So we were basically doing fire maneuver and weapon drills with our, our systems in uh in the Senny Bridge in the Brecon Beacons. And we um we had remember those little these little mini TVs. You had an aerial, you pulled the aerial out and you had a little mini TV. We had one of those and off the three team commanders and one of my mate Kev there. Color sergeant, we just watched watched it happen live, and it was it was heart wrenching because you knew at that very moment, or just the trauma. You, it was like it was like Hollywood level images we were seeing, but it was real, real life, real people. It was honking, and we knew at that point in time, our worlds had changed. And unfortunately, the, the people that were there with us, within two years. 10 of them would be dead. You know what I mean? And that's quite, but we knew and we accepted that things were going to change pretty, pretty drastic. And it's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite, quite bonkers. But we, um, straight after that, we were, you know, there's all sorts of like, you know, the jungle drums are beaten, um, decisions being made. So we were racking up. They said we're going to go ahead. We were going to, Massive uh, British exercise, a joint exercise with the Omani forces, uh, Safe Syria, I think it was called. Yeah, Safe Syria. Uh, and it was in Oman. And that was about uh, 2001, about um, October. So this is about a month, you know, after like, you know, 9 uh, 11. And we, we went out October, November time. But I had to stay. So we did a big six-week exercise in the desert. We're working in a, a small uh, mobility. We still hadn't got um, 
proper sort of reconnaissance wimic vehicles or machine gun mounted vehicles. So we'd like improvise it with, you know, just stripped down uh, landovers. And we were doing a mobile reconnaissance in the desert, which was, it was great. We needed that. We did need that, especially for, you know, it was like, it was, it was like all the, the training sort of bill landed exactly where it should have been really, you know, for, for what happened, which is so sad, but so we were, you know, just working out all our SOPs or reviving our SOPs and working them out, sorting our teams out uh, and doing that during Safe Syria. At the end of Safe Syria, when everyone was returning back, I stayed behind with a couple of our members to take, uh, to run a training package for the Omani Special Forces down in Salala uh, with to do uh, combat climbing, uh, amphibious assault combat climbing. So we were doing like teaching them how to leave climb and set up a fixed lines at night on uh, cliff faces down in Salalaway. And at this point, we met we met all the so the Omani Special Forces guy. And obviously, you've got to be aware, at the time, it was quite, it was quite weird because we, we, we'd we attached with us with a, a Marsoc uh, gunnery sergeant, incredible guy, one of, one of, still one of my best mates. And uh, he was attached to us, but he was dressed as a Brit and his wife's a Brit as well. So he sort of gave it, because of the American thing, it was a bit, it's weird because we were Brits, apparently it was okay. Or, you know, we, we were okay, but he was American. He goes, you just pretend I'm, pretend I'm, I've got, you know, he's Hispanic looking. So he said, pretend, pretend I'm, I've got Turkish extraction. And we're like, go on. <laughs> All right. So we were, I was doing the first demo when, uh, he was my demo man, or, you know, demonstration, and he was my sort of demo man doing all the we were doing uh, combat, you know, runner emplacement on the on the rocks, and uh, he he was just about he was like you're right, and I was I said right yeah, obviously watched my demo man crack on this, and then the the liaison officer who obviously spoke fluent spoke fluent English, he's like ah, I see our American friend is doing the demonstration, and I was like <laughs> you just see them all like that, but they all just looked straight away at at, at chunks and just went. And I was like, going, oof. And it was a look, you know, it was the, uh, it was like he was the devil. It was mega weird. And I know they're not, they're, you know, they were, they were on side, they were allies, but you could just see that look of venom find out that he was American. And I was like, going, oh. But the, he didn't, he didn't let that, he didn't, honestly, he did not let that, you know, get to him whatsoever. And he just cracked on. And then because he's such an incredibly strong character, by the end of the week, he had uh, basically all the Omani you know, Special Forces lads were his best mate. They were like, you know, they they wanted to bring him home to meet their families and everything. So he had, you know, he just transformed their opinion of the US, of him as a person. And that's purely down to his strength of character. He just didn't let it rile him. You know, you could see initially though, that, that could create friction straight away, but it didn't. He, he had it and he controlled it. And he's a, yeah, he's, he's a very talented uh, operator, should we say. So we had that, and that went on for about another three weeks. So I'm, I've been in the desert, living in the desert for about uh, two months now. Um, mind you, down at Salala, I did get a few like uh, air-conditioned sort of pubs, which was good, you know, a couple of beers, which was nice. Uh, but then we we were about to get uh, get back to the UK. Because I'd come out with the exercise, I never had a visa. So it was like, have you seen that film Midnight Express where he's just gone through the airport and he gets stopped? And so he goes, oh, I'll tell so-and-so, you know, is it? So we're going through the airport and we've just literally the day before find out, right, we're going to Afghanistan nearly soon as soon as we get back. So I haven't, you know what I mean? This has happened since 9-11. We're like going, 
and I haven't seen my family or anything, and I'm just going, oh, Jesus. But we, this guy goes, no, no, you can't leave. And they put us up in a five-star hotel and everything, but we were just looking at each other. It's me and, and I was my mate. We just looked at each other. We were going, we were just like completely broken. We just thought, this is it. We might even get to see our family before we just straight on the tailgate back out to Afghanistan. And so after 9-11, we did, we got back. We had Christmas at home, and then we went out to Afghanistan and after Christmas uh, in 2002, or just just into 2002. And that was, you know, the start of the, the whirlwind. So I went, over those years, I went five years on operations nearly every year. So, and uh, when we, we went to Afghanistan the first time uh, on Objekana, and uh, yeah, is a completely different operation than what Hellman would be later on, but it was still, you know, it was on the cusp. But it was still, we were still there. It was still, we were still hunting the Taliban and everything else, and that. And we, we, it was a hard, hard in the mountains as well, mostly up in western uh, Afghanistan, up in the mountains as well. So it was quite a quite a chunky, hard, you know, few months we were there. Then we got back from there and. We were on an exercise, had to generate, had a couple of weeks off, got ourselves sorted. Had to, then we had to generate an exercise up in Scotland on the Isle of Skye, doing that. And while stopping that, this was coming towards uh, Christmas in 2002 again. So we'd come back, got ourselves sorted. And then we got a visit from the command officer, give it the old, right, lads, uh, it looks like we're invading Iraq next year, potentially. And you're going to be, be part of that. So... We literally packed a kit then after Christmas the next year and we were out in Iraq ready for that. So this is like, and then, so this is like from Kosovo to Afghanistan and then straight to Iraq. And then we, and that's when, basically that's when we had had the big, our big, our big hit, which was when we, we were flying in on the, on the night of the evasion, we were flying forward and, and our job was to fly forward off all the, we were, the Free Commander Brigade were under the command of a US Marine Corps division, uh, two-star division commander. And we'd uh, fly forward, uh, 40 commander would fly in with the Navy SEALs and secure the the sort of like uh, the, the the oil head down at the bottom of the Al-4 and clear Al-4 town. And whilst they were doing that, we would fly behind the lines and set up observation posts, OPs, and trigger any reinforcements coming down from the Iraqis and strike them with our uh, forward air controllers and uh, our, you know uh, FACs and uh, our FOOs, our forward air controllers, our forward observation officers that we had with us. And uh, but as we took off, and this is this is this is the, I mean, it, it, it's been out there. We'll, when we done rehearsals, uh, I was on the helicopter and I could see, I sent you one of the pictures not there, but I sent a picture of the helicopter and the, when we done rehearsals, I was in the the left hand of our, it flies in an arrowhead formation of our division of, of helicopters. And there was uh, one, two, three on the left and two on the right, I think, of our division. I was in the third of the flying forward, the back left helicopter and our Alpha, I was the Bravo headquarters. So if anything happened to our Alpha headquarters, I would swap, what, basically get all our coordinate, all our teams back into one and get them back in and off the ground. So I was in the helicopter. So we'd done rehearsals. We had orders. We were observation command, operation command, opcon to 4-2 command at that time. And we'd be given orders by the commanding officer of 4-2 commando 
until like, yeah, as part of that, you'll go forward. Then they'll leapfrog in behind us and, you know, we'd have support, you know, mutual support as such with the his commando unit. And, um, but we've got the rehearsals, got in a helicopter, obviously went through rehearsals, landed on quite heavily at nighttime, dust off. We were flying in US Marine Corps CH-46 helicopters, the uh, uh, C-Nights, I think they're called. And we landed on, got back to the tent. I was trying a tent with uh, all my colleagues who were in the headquarters. Uh, we had discussion, you know, it was all, you know, let's just see how things go. You know, it was a bit of a bit of a hairy, scary ride in a helicopter, but we'll be fine. When we get on the ground, Saddam can stand by as such. And then the following day, we got orders. Yeah, Stephanie's green light's on tonight. Uh, we, we're happening. So 40 commander, we landed on. So they landed on battle. Then we boarded our helicopters. As we were going back onto the back of my helicopter, the tailgate, uh, my OC and Salt Major, uh, and a few of my mates went, no, 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 tip, you're on that. You're on that helicopter over there. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. You know, we, we've got orders. This is it. Your OP is completely different area, area to mine. You know, we were small teams working, you know, separately. So specific OP or landing sites had to be bang on to get the full cover so we could, you know, protect from uh, the the enemy as such. So I went over to this, the other guy said, look, are you happy with our LS? Where we met the land? This night. He goes, no, 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 I have no problems, you know, with you guys. Uh, and he was a, He's a cracking guy, and he'd actually spent time flying with uh, Royal Navy uh, helicopter squadrons, 845, 846. So I shook hands and went back over to the gang and said, right, right, lads, so I'm happy with that. We'll see. And after this phase of the operation, we'd all coordinate together, and then we'd be clearing through the L4, and we'd be the forward recce element of the commando brigade or the commando units. And uh, so big hand, big hugs, and that see on the ground, that's it. So I'm... They're, this, they're the helicopter here flying forward that way, and I'm on this heli- you know, the helicopter here. So I'm sitting on the tailgate with the, the door gunner of the, the 46 looking straight at their helicopter, which is just half right of me, you know, out the back. And it, they're quite tight in the sea night, so you, you, you're strapped in. And I was looking at it, and we, we took off from Q8. We're flying in, and you could see the track we're following. We could see the, the oil fires, and I could, I could check off my map exactly where we were. Went across Boobian Island. We're coming in to land on, and from the front, I got two minutes running, two minutes running in, and nothing happened. And then we kept banking and banking. So I'm going, Oh, we're back on Booby, and oh, we're back into Q8. So we can back round again. And then there was, I, I had this image in my head, which I didn't, the image never registered until the day after, you know, when it happened. And the last thing I seen was I was looking at the back, and the, the helicopter with the lads was on, it just, it went like that, and we we're flying at a hundred feet. So, and it just just went like that, and and just and that's that's the image I've got in my head. And then it was just a blast, and we we're caught in the blast. So it, it blew up underneath us. We we're caught in the blast, the helicopter, and then we carried on. But at this point in time, I can't I couldn't remember that image until the next day. So all I seen was the all right heat. I thought we'd been because we said two minutes run. Then I'd lost the fact we we're back in the Q8 again. I thought we'd been struck by something. It was enemy fire or something, and then. We carried on and there's this massive sort of light bulb of, of flames and fire and debris in the bottom. And I remember saying to my, to be my signaler, and I said, look, that's a helicopter. I'm sure that's a helicopter. But it's not, this memory hadn't, that memory hadn't come in yet. You know I mean, it's, it's, it's such a intense thing and you're caught in the blast and the, the flames and all sorts. So we, 
we're going. And then we got mission aborted. So we mission aborted and all the helicopters, we peeled around back and landed back where we took off from. And I got out of the back of the helicopter. And the first person I seen out the back of the helicopter was a, a guy in civilian clothes. And I was like going, and he he always, he just said, well, you know, have you got any press? Have you got any press? I said, no, no. But I think Oliver North is on one of the helicopters. He goes, no, no, I'm Oliver North. And he was the Fox reporter for, it was with us. So he's the guy, he was the US Marine Corps colonel who lied for the president, Oliver North type thing. And so he said, no, I'm Oliver North. He said, what happened to Dash so-and-so? And I, I still can't remember the number, but I was like, going, I just looked straight away. And then it all, that's it. The memory just hit me. That was that bang, bang, them. they're all dead. So we're stuck. It's still pitch black. I said, look, thanks for that. There, leave the lads there. So I led, left my team there. And I had to walk about, it was about a kilometre in the desert up to a little infrared dot, which was the command post for 4-2 Commando with their second in command there coordinating the move forward, which which we were part of. And it was just as I was I was walking in, it's just starting to get daylight. And he knew me, he knew my family and that, and he just looked at me and goes, you are dead. I said, no, no, I'm not dead, but the rest of the lads are dead. And basically they hadn't changed the white cards and basically they, my stick and my people, uh, you know, it's a, you know, the, the saving private Ryan thing. See, saving private Ryan, they're in a landing craft, landing craft, machine gun goes out there, but that would be on a green card because that's amphibious surface fleet. And that green card would have exactly who the names are on it. If you're in aviation or on a helicopter, it'd be a white card and that'd be tell exactly the same, but the white cards hadn't been changed. So there's no order or track why our helicopters should have been changed. Not at all. And that, even to this day, just, you, you know what I mean? It's quite, it's an awkward one. There's no, there's no, after getting a set of orders to invade a country and then just on a, it just happens like that. And I don't, I still to this day, maybe somebody out there does know, but I, I don't. And I, I've never found out the truth behind it. So just so I'm so, clear, the, the crew that you did the rehearsal with was the crew that went down in the crash. Yeah. And you were switched yeah. to the other helicopter. Yeah, no my reason. whole team were. Yeah, the yeah. teams were just swapped around. Oh, the team, no the whole reason. team. Okay. Yeah, the whole team. So you think that, and there's no, there's no, there's no, uh, with no orders for it or anything. It was just saying, no, no, you're on that helicopter with her now. And that, that was it. Which, yeah, you know, whatever you can say about it or anything, it's just, it still sits and it, 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 it lays low in my heart because of it. So when when I was talking to the CIC of, of 4-2, like, and saying to him, like, you know, but he, he's like, on, well, who was on it? And I explained who was on it, on the helicopter and who died. And he, um, but as I was chatting to him, the Padre, uh, the, 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 yeah, the, the Padre, we call him from, from a four two commando, come up to me, and he, he was obviously looking at me. I go, all oh, right, and a, and a few of my friends think they all, you know, as well, the old jungle drums beat, and never all of a sudden, everyone knows, everyone knows what's happened. But because at that stage, everyone thought I was dead, including the core guys of the officer who was back in the UK, who knew me and my family, and and he was like, he had received notification that I'd I died. My my team had you know had perished, and then he said he, he he sat for like thirty seconds before basically telling the Grim Reaper you know the the Nodikas to go around and inform people that their loved ones had died, and uh, in that thirty seconds he got a phone call to stop it all. You know, I mean it was it was it was the wrong one because you know we, we don't know what happened. But when I was chatting to the Padre, I looked over his shoulder and and one of the the brothers of one of the lads died in a helicopter was sat in the desert and he's waiting to get on the next sticks to go out there. And I was saying, 
you know, unfortunately his brother's dead, so you have to, you know, and he had to be informed, you know what I mean? But obviously once it had to be done professionally and properly, but it was just so sad looking at him, you know, just because he, you know, he looked so much like his brother as well. And it was like, you know, and then we just had to re-roll ourselves, get ourselves sorted out. We had no American aviation now, so we relied on the RAF uh, to get us dropped off. They did drop us off, but in the wrong place. <laughs> in the wrong place, you say? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs> of course, of course. And uh, But we, and we carried on, but it was that surreal thing that we thought, did everything that happened in the last, you know, because we hadn't, we haven't slept now for what, like 15 hours and now we're, we're yomping through the middle of a battlefield because they've dropped the sight of it and we have to be forward of it. So we're, we don't know who's shooting at us, whether it's friendly forces or Iraqis and incoming fire. And we just like, started off, we used to take a lot of cover and we'd get down, take cover, get the gun out, everything else. After that, we're just going, just, just keep moving. Just keep, keep moving. Cause you know, we, it's midday sun, we've got body armor, helmets, you know, heavy kit, lots of ammunition and observation kit and comms kit. And we just kept moving and we got ourselves forward. And there was some incredible mini sort of like serials that happened there, which which I'll, I'll keep I'll keep from my book. But, you know, just, you know, the surreal stories of battle where, where you, you're watching things and you're, yeah, completely, you know, yeah. It's a wonder how so many people didn't die rather than, you know, the people that did die as such. So, yeah, so... We'd done that. We carried on and uh, we got, you know, we we were fully involved with the advance on the Basra. We were carrying out raids. We were um, crossing uh, Iraqi sort of guns, spiking guns, locating enemy positions, uh, coordinating air aviation and, you know, using anti-tank systems. And then we had backup from tanks when we got towards Basra and, then we were the part of the lead element going into Basra and we sort of secured the gates of Basra Palace. And then my troop had to step back and go and secure Chemical Alley's house. That was that was another claim of him. So we had to secure the, the, the classic Chemical Alley or Comical Alley, they used to call him. Uh, we had to secure his house. But as we were driving in to Basra, uh, it was being sort of like, should we say, it was just being real. It was being looted by about 3 million people. It was like a, an ant's nest where people just run out with uh, sinks, toilets, everything. And when we finally, you know, secured the thing, that left the team with uh, 4-2 commander, we were going to exploit the palace. And then we moved around to Chemical Alley's house. And uh, yeah, it was it was just fully cleansed. We just had to secure it until uh, some, uh, you know, inspection teams come in. But it was, it was cleansed <laughs> completely. You know, we're talking like metal wires taken out of the, the wall, there was a there was a stairway that was ripped out, which was made of concrete. <laughs> there was it was a yeah they they'd done a good job, and it must have been in about well, about an hour or something before we arrived. So yeah, but good on them. It was you know I mean taking back what you know, really it's, it was there. So we, and that happened, and then uh, but then, yeah, there's there's there was, we, we were very busy people in that on that operation. And I think we we. We done our lads. We lost obviously in the air. We, you know, I think uh, we we done them justice and you know earned earned some laurels from the thing. 
when I talk to a lot of people that served, say, with, with Afghanistan first, that, that were in Afghanistan, I seem to get the same kind of answer from a lot of the people, especially in the special operations community. And it almost is mirrored by a guy I just had recently, Rasul Rasek, who's uh, a former Mushahideen fighter. He was fighting the Taliban this whole time, and he's now trying to bring you know the Afghan people back together again. Um, but I hear over and over again that strategically, if we had gone in taking care of the things that need to be taken care of, whether it's capturing key targets, shutting down training camps, and then left, um, that would have been more effective. What is, you know, obviously 20 years later, we have the withdrawal certainly was was subpar at that point. And you talk about Basra, you know, we gave up that airport too. If you were king for a day, strategically, I mean, being, you know, in the position that you are, obviously you were, you know, a leader in the Royal Marines. If we could do it again, and that same situation happened, where, as, as you said, there are, there are people sometimes that you have to physically go and, and take out. Strategically, what would you do differently? Um, I'm not being political. If if the task is going ahead and you have to achieve it, you've got to have a you've got to have a depth plan. You've got to have a a staged depth plan, which covers the initial insertion, the surgical requirement, but also whatever void or vacuum is left in structural, socially and governmentally is filled properly and appropriately with the relevant people. So all your intelligence backup or your your intel going through this building up is who are the personalities? Who are they? You know, the people in the communities, because all these communities have senior leads and people out there, you know, and criminal elements as well. But you want the people that have got the moral fiber to fill that void. You know, that who's the who's their opponent? If there was a democracy, who would their opponent be? That's the person you want, because he's got the democratic will rather than the the gun will. You know what I mean? So that 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 was it. That should all be be, be templated out. And then that could be part of the the surgical strike could be done with surgical surgical influence straight away. Uh, you know, and I think I think that was that was tabled and that was wanting to happen, but uh, you know, obviously things things you know, you still have to. There's elements to the ground. And what we found, we done a we done a raid one night, uh, and after we came back from the raid, so we went in with an enemy location with between thirty thirty between thirty and thirty eight enemy and depth targets, and we closed in on the the location, hit them quite hard, but we broke contact and. You know, got our way back to our lines, and when we got back to our lines, uh, we 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 armoured, we got our wep- weapons prepped again, and like obviously we're you know we're within about five k of the actual point we were actually you know targeting the enemy, and we 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 got ourselves remustered, and the next day when daylight came, we had about like thirty forty Iraqi troops come down surrendering after we'd done the raid. But when we went back in, because the next night we were going to do another raid uh, in a similar sort of target area, but we got a, the go-ahead that we were going to carry out up James, and that was securing the actual uh, village, and then that would be a foothold into Basra. And when we got that, we would, we went forward, and what we found was that the what was left of the enemy now were all uh, they were uh, fed IN, you call, which were fundamentalists. You no, know, they were, you know, somebody say. Theological sort of fun, fundamentalists who, who you know, they we, we were the infidel, and that was you know they, they were, and what sadly what I seen from them is they were all very young, very poor, and you know, 
they hadn't got the education. Their education had come from people that said that they were they were going to become martyrs, and they were just they hated us for for us being us, which was sad for them. And there's no disrespect for me there because they stood and fought. But unfortunately, if they had have surrendered like the regular guys did the day before, that would have been so much easier for us. Now, conversely, obviously, we're talking about combat. You touched on the humanity of people you know that you saw obviously in in northern ireland and kosovo talk to me about iraq and afghanistan i think one of the things that again going back to the media that was so um irresponsible was it was presented that we were at war with iraq we were at war with afghanistan whereas there were two countries that are being oppressed by extremists that you guys were in there trying to infiltrate so talk to me about that humanity, that kindness and compassion, that, um, you know, the the similarities that you witnessed in those two countries, you know, with that same lens that we discussed earlier. When I think it's the same in in um, in Kosovo as well, it's that it, it's human beings. When we were in Iraq, when we started, you know, closing with the enemy and closing with the civilian population, Again, you sort of, there was like a natural vibe within the population, you know, the village elders, people come out and I would speak to them. I mean, and I'd say we did have to be quite reserved of the information they were given us because there was still a lot of, um, should we say, um, inner tribal sort of structures. You know, they they seen, you know, when, when they're in their own little mini communities, they seen that there was there was a void now and this could be their their turn to step up and make their, their clan, the, the strong clan as such. So we had to be quite tempered with our, you know, we, we never took executive decisions on, you know, thing. we would hoover up an intel and pass it back, you know, intelligence and get it passed through. Uh, but for the people, they were exactly the same. They were the human beings and the people that we found when we started getting into Basra and that, they had nothing. They hadn't been given water. They hadn't been given food. They were getting rationed food. And because they were, um, should we say, they weren't Sunni, they were Shia, they weren't, you know what I mean? They they were subjugated massively. So they were literally when we arrived, we were we were liberators. It looked like some of the scenes in, you know, in Paris and in France, like the Second World War, that's it. They were thinking out. And we spent when we did you know secure different you know phases of it, we were we were bringing water in, we were getting sort of supply, we were getting medical help. You know, we were just we were helping people that had been basically persecuted for for for, for quite a while. You know, and and you know it, and similarly, in Afghanistan, that was similar when we when we got down to the Helmand area, and in in the the western when we went in the in the Hindu Kush or in the the western part of a uh, you know western highlands and that of uh, of Afghanistan, some of the villages we were going to, um, again taken with a pinch of salt, were saying, "No, we've never seen the Taliban, never." And strangely enough, the guy I remember one guy telling me, and he was. He was about a foot taller than me. Uh, his English was far better than my English. And it is massive. He looked like the most classic Taliban fighter you've ever seen in your life, big black disc, gosh, that. Pure English. He goes, no, 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 the Taliban aren't here. And he goes, the Taliban aren't, aren't you know, they're not the enemy. They're, there's there's good Taliban and there's bad Taliban. And I always kept this. I kept this. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, fair one. He says, it means you're a student. And he brought me into his madrasa where he had all these these young boys um, reading the the Quran or reciting the Quran, and they were all reciting the Quran in 
Arab because it's written in Arab, but they're Pashtun, so they speak Pashtun and they they don't speak Arab, but they can recite the Quran in Arab. And this this was a, a school, and I was going, you know, I'm not, I can't, I'm not the major person going, you're the Taliban. So we'd search for weapons and everything else and that there and carry on and be as nice as possible. Say, well, is there anything we can do for you? And he goes, oh, oh, we've had it, we had a, a well fitted last year, so we've all got clean water and this and that. So, and to be honest, he was, he was a polite, he was a nice guy, but, you know, I, I definitely think he was, he was one of the students that considered himself a good Taliban. And, uh, we went away from there, but since since doing that, since being back in in southwest of England, uh, I got a taxi back from the pub once, and uh, the taxi driver was uh, from Afghanistan, and he was an interpreter in Afghanistan, and he was one of the nicest blokes. I was just going, "Oh, what are you doing?" He goes, "Well, during the day I work at the hospital. I do this, do this to work with trolleys." That and at night I got a taxi out there because I've got my family here and everything else, and I was just mega. You know, he was just, and he was really, you know, he's articulate and he was he was great. And I said, like, you know. Of your, you know, sad times of what happened, and he goes, he said, "I'm, I'm broken, I'm brokenhearted." You know, you know how what has happened, and I said, "Well, I said I did meet this one guy. He said there's good Taliban and bad Taliban," and he went, and he was that really, really got him riled up, and he said, "There's no good Taliban. There's absolutely." He says, "No, they've destroyed everything that Afghanistan means to me," and I couldn't argue with him. It's his, it was his country. It was he. You know, and he, he, you know, he's a switched on cookie. But yeah, I, I, and I, I, I keep that one. I, I don't. You know what I mean, I, I'm. It does make when people say, "Oh, there's good Taliban, bad Taliban." And I, I just listen to him. But knowing, you know, when you chat to somebody, and he really that 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 was something that waked him. He was the most polite, wonderful person. As soon as I said that, that was he said, "No, no, 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 no." And then when when we watch those images, when. And it, it, the sad thing is, because I spent so much of my life being, a, you know, a Royal Marines commando. When we leave somewhere like that, when we've we've sacrificed so much blood and and treasure, you know, the, the you know the the young men that that I work with who died, lost their lives out there, and have lost their lives back back here, they were incredible. Absolutely, I mean, we're talking, you know, I mean the, you know, what I mean they're just. They, they, they were the, they were all, they, they were like, you know, the height of their generation. They were the, the pinnacle of their generation. And then for, we knew it was going to be a long, it was a long drive, only because of the politics and the planning, but we knew the culture and the culture of the people. And again, like I say, all the other places, the people are exactly the same. When we used to go into villages, they go, obviously taken with a pinch of salt. Obviously, they, all they want is for the good things for the family, the education, this and that, all that there. But also, if they blame somebody else or say somebody else is Taliban, take it with a pinch of salt because it's all that, you know, it's culturally, it's 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 what they do. I mean, not, 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 you know, not saying it, but they are human beings. And when we were out there, we met some incredible, incredibly strong, wonderful people who supported us, who were uh, interpreters and, and, and everything, and, you know, Tiger teams and, and you know, uh, people that work with us. We also work with some people that were not so good, and you know, I've I've lost a few colleagues to green on blues as well, where where they've been killed by by so called police, you know, forces. So that, but we fought that. That's what we done. We we it was our expectation. We knew it was going to be a hard nutritional war, but for us to leave at such a you know a quick in such a quick way. 
with an expectation that we we're going to they were going to last longer. Even even with hindsight, I still at the time think we 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 obviously failed massively, and I think our our massive organisations that support you know the, the intel and everything else and that they failed miserably. And if in some way I've got to look, my friends that, that were killed in operations in Afghanistan, I've got to look and Iraq as well. I've got to look the the mothers in the eye and the families and say that it wasn't in vain. Yeah, if you turn around, look behind you now, look at Afghanistan, there's not that much difference now, is it? That is that is extremely sad. Extremely sad. But it's extremely it makes me extremely not only sad, but extremely wary because the fact is we went there for a reason. And that reason tends to back where it is. And that's that's even you know, I mean Generation, generational, generational again, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's ironic actually. I just took an Uber. I was in Dallas interviewing two World War Two veterans, Iwo Jima veterans, and uh, on the way there, I had an Afghan Uber driver who was an interpreter for the U.S. Army. So I had a very similar conversation with him, and you know, it was the same thing. And then Rasul, who just came on, oh, for like four months ago, you know. What we're not being told, obviously, there's the toll of us just pulling out. There's the the kind of um, comparison with Vietnam. Um, but now Afghanistan is about to go through its winter. And there are people on all the borders that are starving to death, freezing to death on top yeah. of the oppression from the Taliban. And we're not really hearing, you know, the the again, you talk about voids, you know, what happened yeah. in that void after we all pulled away. Yeah. And that and that. And let's just say they're proper winters. They're not in those mountains. They are, you know, you know, these are big, big, big places. Absolutely. But I, I mean, I one one of my friends, which I'll, I'll tell you about it anyway. But I've got I've got a, a friend who's who's done a documentary, who's a former Royal Marines uh, and Special Forces guy who was out there when when Afghan fell, and he was filming at the time. Him and a, another former Royal Marine were filming at the time, and they. They captured it all, and they're uh, they've, 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 they've released a documentary called Afghanistan, and it's it's filmed you know it's filmed another time. I mean, do you, I mean, uh, it's, it's well you know you're recording and editing anyway, so its name's J- James Glancy, but I can I can you know if you uh, if you Google him James Glancy in Afghanistan, then uh, that's good. I, I do I do a. I do an American voiceover on it. Don't critique me. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling my my wife this the other day you know, when I first came to America, you know, the, and I worked on a performing arts summer camp. So I was around, you know, the kids and spent some of the teachers were like these actors and be like, oh, you know, oh my God, I do the best American accent. I mean, the English accent. And they'd be <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. hello, you know, it would just be awful. <laughs> and then you'd just be like, that is by far one of the best Pakistani accents I've ever heard. Yeah, no. <laughs> and they'd be crushed. Really, really. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean I I you know it, it's it's a scary thing. Actually, I just had um Sean Taylor on um sorry, Shane Taylor from uh, Band of Brothers a while ago and he played oh. the medic. Um you know, so that's impressive. There's, there's a lot of times where He's awesome, man. He plays an awesome part as well. Yeah. He's one of the saddest moments in the film, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. In that church. So, so yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's funny you say that because, you know, I think when you're humble, 
you the accents terrify you because you're trying to get it right for the people that are native to that area. But it does make me laugh when people say, you know, I'm I'm so good at Australia yeah, accent yeah. X, and you listen to it and you're like, oh my god, <laughs> no. It's, it's but but what I get is, I mean, I, I I would say that I'm I'm okay with doing accents as long as you got time to focus on and create it. But everyone gives it, right? Just do 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 a Scottish accent now, and you're going. It's just not the. It's not. You just. It is not the same. You just gotta. Yeah. Let's just get back. Get back. Live it. Live the script. Live out there, and you do become it. It's different because everyone's. I, I love that. I love you, especially you. I mean, you you come from England, so you you know it. Within England, the amount of different accents. It's bonkers, isn't it? Absolutely bonkers. Yeah, like an which hour. Is from magical. Yeah, I know. Magical. Like, you know, less than an hour sometimes. You know, I mean? so I, I. That's that is the magic of it. Absolutely. Well, that's the perfect segue. So as you kind of get to the end of your career in uniform, you start thinking about drama, the world of acting. So what, you know, when, when did that hit you and what made you make the jump into drama school? Well, uh, so the, I, I wasn't focused on drama, honestly, I was, I was focused on being a bootneck. And I think it came to the realization that um, I was in the same commander unit as my son. And I thought, and I was wearing reading glasses and I was sitting in front of a computer screen. I was a captain now and I'm like going, oh, this isn't, and I, I was lucky enough. I got to play commandos most of my life. You know what I mean? Most of my career. So this is up to near 30 years. And I thought, I just, and I'd never, ever thought of this at any single point up until this point. It went, I need to do something else. And that was it. And it, then I thought about what, what is it that, what skills can I map across? And there's loads. I mean, obviously, I, I can go off to a far-flung hot place and teach people how to be commandos. And I'm going, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. And I so many friends have done that, but I thought I just, I just couldn't do it. So, what is it? What else do I love to do? And, I, and then I realised that in the forces, and you know this in the fire service as well, it's all about storytelling, isn't it? It's all about, it's all about. We, we call it the dits. It's all about spinning the dit. So telling the story is called spinning the dit in the in naval speak and in, in, in marine speak. So it's all about telling a story and being, I mean, sailors are the same, marines are the same, service people, veterans, firefighters, and all, and policemen are all the same. They all tell a good story, don't they? Especially when they've they've been on a on a gig or on a job and that there, it all comes and it? it's all about the stories. So I went to a local university in the in the southwest and looked at creative writing because I thought, right, I'll be a storyteller and write stories. That's that's something I would love to do. And while I was looking at it, there was a an acting degree, uh, you know, to do actor training for three years. I thought, that's the way we tell stories. You know, that's it. It's me. I'm the storyteller. So let's 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 get amongst it. So I I looked at it. Uh I did quite a bit of prep for it. You know, you had the audition, get yourself a place and everything else. And I got on the course and I went to Marjorie University in Plymouth and trained with the actor's wheel for three years. But when I started my actor training, I was 47 years old. And the nearest age to me in my in my group was uh she was 23. And and she was a mature student. And as a lovely girl as well, like, but after that, everyone else were about 18 and they were all, all starting their adventure. And it was a my partner said to me at the time, he said, I think you should join, you know, do this seamless transfer and just not leave the Marines, just join straight into the reserves. I said, well, no, but I've done my time. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of 
fed the raw marine beast that I needed to be fed. And she goes, no, I really, I really do think you should do it. And within, I reckon, about two days, I realized that was probably the most smartest thing I ever heard. So whilst I was really sort of like, you know, fusing back into civilian life and, and youthful sort of university life, I was able to sort of like, you know, nip away and do, do marine things and talk to haggard old horrible guys like me and just that that helped bring my little bit of reality back and, you know, allowed me to sort of fuse back into the real world as such, you know what I mean? And But I had a great time training with, uh, with all these youngins and uh, I graduated in 2018 and things started off really well. Started off on a, doing a national tour with the play, we went to Edinburgh Festival, uh, performed in Sadler's Wales, London and Liverpool, Manchester and then uh, I well, everything was running. It was like you know, I'd back to back. I performed at Shakespeare's Globe and going right. Yeah, I might get get away with this one. And then COVID happened, and then it was like, oh, for the whole world, everyone went stop. So COVID happened, but I managed to get a few jobs through COVID. I got a a commercial. So I sent you a link to the commercial I done. Where I, I can't remember if you bro- did. But I done a I. I played two brothers and it's say for a big, uh, massive, so like a uh, international haulage firm. And, uh, I went, I flew out to, and it was just in the first little gap of COVID flew out to Milan was obviously completely empty Heathrow airport with a mask on, flew out to Milan, uh, and filmed in Milan and in the Dolomites up in the mountains and on a mountain lake, uh, over the next week. And it was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Got back. So, my agent was happy because she's going, there's no work about it. You got that. That's a, that's a winner. So I got I got a commercial in and then I got a job as a, which, which is good because it's coming out shortly. Have you seen the next, oh, you were, we were talking about, you've, you've worked with, you've spoken with Dale Dye, haven't you? Yes, Dale actually, uh, just as of two days ago, he's supposed to be calling me and we're going to get him back on the show. So wait, does, just tell him I was that dodgy Irish Marine who was the COVID bastardo, as you can say. So I, <laughs> I was the one of the COVID. I was one of the. I was the COVID. My my designation was COVID set manager on, uh, ban, or sorry, masters of the earth. So this is the big things coming out in January on. Uh, uh, it's on Apple, isn't it? But it, you know, it's not. It's weird. It's it was looking at it, looking at the trailer. It's incredible, and and that trailer, apart from the sort of internal shots of the the air shots in the air, nearly every single scene. I'm I was standing watching it. Or watching people not wearing the masks, so and I was there as a COVID dude, so it was it was well paid. It was not a very enjoyable job, but I think I think it was a very important job because it made the the production actually happen. Mm-hmm. I don't think it done my acting career any good whatsoever. They probably <laughs> scarred with this dodgy Irish dude who was the, the 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 COVID Nazi for the duration. But I think it worked well, and they got the production out in the end, didn't it? So they'll they'll probably remember that me at the time but during that time as well we managed to film uh star film in sunray so this was like you know it's a couple of years now isn't it so yeah a couple of years ago uh in the summer so it's about just gone two years uh was when the meat of the filming was done for both uh masters of the air and for sunray so sunray now is uh we managed to get the the first film and sort of shoots done first through about three weeks worth uh, done in that summer. Uh, then I finished off back in the 
masters of the air and that's it now after covid um yeah i've been generally sort of steady state running been doing uh theater work uh, a bit of film work you know and and just just keeping at it like i said just come back from malta filming for the count of monte cristo keep your eye for a a very sort of like suave sword fencing french general at some stage <laughs> Well, I got a question for you because I went to drama school in the uh, Welsh College of Music and Drama in Cardiff about, Ooh. God, when was I there? 24 years ago. Yeah. And it was to, to follow a girl. That's basically what happened. My girlfriend <laughs> at the time was a set designer and costume maker in that, that class. And so I, with zero acting experience, auditioned, somehow got in. I think I just wasn't, like you said, I was a little bit older. You know, I was a martial artist and all these things. So yeah. that they were like, oh, we don't have, you know, this kind of person. Um went through the year of acting discovered that i was really good at the sword play stuff but to this day i still consider myself one of the worst actors on the planet hands down it just i just couldn't drop me you know what i mean i couldn't get into that that space <laughs> Mate, don't say that people probably say the same about me <laughs> <laughs> no 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 i'm telling you you work um <laughs> But when when it came to the showcases at the end, it's funny. I talked about Welcome Home, Tony Marchant. I had a, a monologue, and it went really well. And I got, um, oh my goodness, what's William Morris? I got William Morris approach me and say, "I really loved your audition, but I'm not the person who would handle you. So you know, we need to get you with someone else. Let me know when you get a play." And this was uh, God 2000, I think. So I was stuck in this vicious circle of you need an agent to get work, you need work to yeah, get an agent. Yeah. Yeah. So with that whole kind of monologue, when you came out of school, how were you able to be so successful right off the bat? I mean, firstly, talk, talk to me about how you were able to, to access the skills that make you a good actor. And secondly, how are you able to kind of break through that revolving door of leaving drama school? Uh, Rob, I, I'll go with the... the what I learned on the through actor training was because I mean also I started actor training because I want to be a storyteller. But when you when you do get these stories and when you start um, you know looking at playwrights, looking at plays, looking at classic films, looking at characters, and you look at characters, especially when you're going through emotional journeys with a character. And what you learn is it's got to be believable. It's got it's got to be believable. It's got to be credible. And I. With the emotional characters, you know, I I was struggling with it. I really do, and I've, I've I spoke to quite a few people about this, but because I just felt that for me to go to places that which do put me in that you know saddened state, you know, that emotional state where you want you know you've got tears, and for years I haven't been able to do that because of like say I I believe because of the emotional. Uh, protection I've put in place and resistance I've put up, you know, whilst deployed in operations and from, for that long career. But I had to go into places and that meant thinking about lads I lost and the sacrifices and, you know, and, and, and family, loved ones and, and all sorts. So I, I, and I, that played with my moral compass. That played with the, hold on a second. I'm, this is, what am I just to make to, you know to, to create a story? I'm I'm using like you know the you know the most wonderful people and feelings I've got in my heart and soul to do it, and I I struggle with it. I really struggle with it. So 
I had to sit down and sort of play it. Why, why is it? Why am I an actor? Why am I a storyteller? And then I realized for me to be a credible storyteller and to get to tell the tale properly was I had to go back and reach out to my friends. So I'm, I'm an actor, hopefully a semi-credible actor because I can reach out to my friends who are dead and no longer with me and I can keep their memories alive. So people go, you know, while you're acting, I'm an actor, I'm purely an actor that, that, that can achieve the characters because I've got a lot of dead friends that I can tap into and can come you know, and help me. So their memories and their sacrifices are kept alive. So what, whatever interview I do, I've got to make sure that people are aware of that. You know, that that's so important for for me as an actor. And that goes into, like, what have you learned to become an actor? Being an actor, I mean, the best one-liner I got when I was an actor training was Amanda Collins, who was one of our lecturers from, from Ireland, from Wicklow, and she just went, the old, right, tip, get back up there and stop fucking acting. And that's it. So the fact is, <laughs> you know, it's just right. It, it is It is not. He said it's something right. Act apart. And it goes back to the old classic Stanislavski and the dog. They all pretend they're actors. Blah, 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 blah. Acting, 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 acting. Dogs are going, not interested, not interested. As soon as they stop and they're getting themselves ready to go, dogs up and knows they're going. Why is that there? It's because they're not acting anymore. And that's it. So it's the old, if you say, if you pretend, right, I've got to act this. If you act something, it's just, that's it. He's always acting. But it's not. It's got to be. You've got to. It's 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 all about human engagement, and every sort of like every feel and look, and it. But also the the two disciplines, like acting for theatre and acting for camera, they're like polar opposites. It's like you know they are, but they. You still got to get the right the same message across, but you've got to do it with a big chunk of you that has been molded and formed into part of the character. The character is a character, but no nobody. You'll never be cast as a. As well as anything, unless you th- there's something in that character that's part of you. Unless you're like you know there's what about ten actors in the world that give it, they'll get it anyway. It doesn't matter. But generally, everyone else is giving it. Yeah, that's that's it. That's it. And depending on what what sort of like Henry ship table right down to the you know the the bare bones at, it's still they'll go. It, there's got to be a chunk of you in it. You know I mean so to be that character, and uh, but again, if it's if it's absurdist or you're just doing it for, I mean, like say, I could play any character. You know what I mean? I, ca- I could, but a big chunk of me will still be in that character. You know what I mean, it, it'll happen, but it's just making it, and it's weird. It's not about acting. It's about believability. And it's about, and the believability comes from real human emotions. You know what I mean? So whether that be love, hate, everything, it's just a look, they've all got to be real. And if you act it, it's a classic. Another good saying I, I heard from a, a good American marine man is, "You stand out like a turd in a glass of milk." You know what I mean? So, <laughs> and you're like, "I've gone ah, yes, I, I yes, I see, ooh, ooh." You know what I mean? So it's a bit like that. If you if you're acting, going ah, it sticks out a bit. You know what I mean? So, so I, that all these terms I learned from from my training that comes in handy. But it, it is that it's it's about believe being, and I, I learned that in acting school. Uh, so I did, I learned loads of things, but the meat of everything, and I say, and I, I empathize with young actors, you know, across the board is because um, I've got a life full of experience and that experience leans, you know, I mean, and that's across the whole spectrum of, of life, not only on operations, but, but living and growing up and 
that passage of right that every human being should have, and luckily I have had it, that's allowed me to tap into memories and, and experiences, which gives credibility. If you're a young actor, you still have that. You still have your life experience, but I'm just saying you've, as, as years go on, it opens up and doors and the wealth comes there, I think. So that's the old, don't, as an actor, don't worry about it. You know what I mean? It's just, it'll happen. And I think that's it. If you don't, if you don't worry about it, it becomes more natural, which again, is a bit of an oxymoron because if you're going for an audition, I mean, people do generally get nervous, but I, I, but I can't get nervous. And I've worked on stage with established actors who are they're quite nervous every time they go on stage. And I'm going, how can you be nervous? You know what I mean, I'm like, oh, and, and then again, I've got my friends inside my head. So look, look at me going, so you've got to stand at a piece of wood and talk and you're nervous. And I'm like, no, and I, I have to go, that, that sort of quills my, any apprehension I've got because I can just go, whoa, I'm not a cheat because I can have somebody shooting at me from 30 foot away and auto, with full autograph, Kalashnikov, that I can really be worried about. But not if I just have to stand there and talk. If, I, if that's the case, then I'm a bit of a lost cause, aren't I? And then, but also I've got to look those, those my, my, the souls of my mates in the eyes and going, I'm not a cheat. I'm not a cheat, honestly. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a good lad. I am a good lad. But it's you know, so that apprehension, you just got to go ditch it, ditch it. There's no, there's no, no time for it. And I think if if you can do that, uh, that will help you massively. You know? It was physicality that helped me when I started doing the stunts yeah. and I was then very successful in the stunt world and the, the live show side. Um, that was it. You know, if I didn't have to stand there and just say words, if I could use my, my physicality, yeah. then the other stuff came. So I'll give myself some grace on that, but you know, just standing no, no, but there. James, but, but honestly, uh, the physicality of an actor, that's it. You, you, on, see with that though, you must admit the, the confidence you get with physicality is brilliant, is wonderful. And that's that's something I think is very much, which is not as strong as what it used to be in society now. So you know, that ability to understand the limits, how your body can, what it can do. And you must admit, some of the young people, some of the young people like in all different forms, whether it be sports climbing, gymnastics, ballet, and all that, the extremes that they've got now and the performance, the perfection they've got, is mind blowing and stunts as well. You know what I mean all that there, but that physicality is just you know I mean I, you could sit and watch them all day, that you know, part of weight ratio and everything. I just you know, it's, it just it blows your mind, doesn't it? I mean, even think when we grew up as well, the arm and triathlon, that was like you know, the you know, I mean, or the marathon de sable. There's now that people do it all the time and you're just going, people are there are people who understand it. But again, that the 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 spectrum's changing on it. There used to be you know I mean, now you're like, oh, there's some people that, that can do Martin the Sabbath, but there's some people that can't get over an armchair, you know what I mean? And that, that's, you know I mean, that void is, and it was, you must admit, from the olden days, it wasn't, it was it's a bit more central, but now it's extremes, isn't it? A hundred percent. I even have, have that people um, talking about military um, recruitment. You know, they say, you know, we got a, same with the fire service, we got a way smaller pool. Because, you know, you look at a lot, a lot, and I'm not talking about all, yeah. a lot of kids, you know, I mean, there's, there's a linear 45 degree line on childhood obesity, especially in America, but I see even when yeah. I go home. And conversely, though, our fit recruits are really fit. So the question is, how do we push that line back? We've got these young phenoms now that are about to be firefighters, police officers, Marines, how can we start recapturing some of these kids that are getting pulled into video games and donuts and bringing them back 
into this super inspirational area and it's cultural and it's food and it's all these things but we need you know we we're talking about earlier about media and leadership i just was talking listening to a air force um scientist who's been in the, the uh, human performance side his whole career he's one of the gurus that works with darpa and all these high high performing agencies and it's you know this is again a national crisis so how can we get the focus away from these kind of clickbait news stories and back to what's on our streets and in, in our schools and get these young people healthy firstly so they have a beautiful long lifespan but secondly that they become you know able to be of service in whatever capacity they choose but, but again like everything you said does completely bang on but it is that it's education and ownership isn't it it's ownership when you when you own it yourself you know you know the dynamics of your own body now, but that's education, but it's it's empowerment. You've got to empower kids or young people to, to get that. So once they have that knowledge, they know, and it's, it's and then it's choices. But I'd also say the whole industry-wise and corporation-wise, they need to under, understand what sugars do, what this, what we're doing, why are we creating that? Everything's about maximum profit, and that's it. We've got to flip where the profit is made. Profit's got to be made in a more in the positive way and rather than a negative way. You know I mean, and that's including fuel and everything else. And that. So the, the profit margins, and this is hard. It's, it's the, I know it's the hunger for certain things, you know, as in fuel and things like that, but I'm just, it's, it's, if we can get the positives, are they rewarded as in the, the profit things in the positive world? You know what I mean? Through, through industry. That's that, I think that's the big question. If we can do that, 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 because the system and the world is set up for towards positivity, then that would go down into our kids. But at the minute, it isn't. It's still fixed firmly the other way about gratuitous, materialistic, and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. You talked about tapping into the souls of your fallen brothers. I had a hypnotherapist on um, uh, Courtney Starkey. Amazing conversation. And she was saying that the word genius actually means, I forget what they said, like, you know, spirit friends or something like that. Um, and I'm writing my second book, which is a fiction this time, and it's a multi-generational trauma story. Very, very complex. I'm a complete ding-dong for choosing that to be my first one, but that's the one that's, you know, burning inside me. But, um, and again, I'm making it to make it into a show or a film because just like you, I'm not going to be the actor. Hopefully, you know, when this happens, putting it out there, uh, it'd be cool to do a little cameo, even more so maybe as a stuntman. That'd be kind of cool. But anyway, um, but she was talking about tapping into your spirit friends, your spirit animals. And and it seems to me that, you know, a lot of the men that you lost have become your your genius. So have you found an element of catharsis being able to storytell, especially some of the more powerful stories that you've told, you know, in the veteran community? Um you know, as as acting being your outlet now. Um, yeah, I do think cosmos is a, is a good word for it because I think, but it's, it's the choice thing. It's a choice. Remember, I, I said right, I'm going to be a Royal Marines commando. Didn't fit the mold at the time, but I was going to do it. When I sort of knew that I needed to do something creative and go down that path, and I went and acting was it. You know, it was, it was like a little light bulb when we're going. But like that is what I have to do. And I, I'm in a position now where where I don't need much in life. As in, you know what I mean? I don't I don't need much in life. Um I've never really done a single thing in my life. Luckily, I'm 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 stable and happy now. 
but I've never done a single thing in my life for money. I've done it purely for, you know, what I wanted to do for the adventure, for, for the, you know what I mean? The, the mere fact that you got paid was, was a massive, well, it is a bonus. That means that you can do things you love. And I loved being a Royal Marines commando. So now I get, I get paid for, for being a storyteller. And again, it's cathartic in a way because it's 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 just keep, it's bringing me closer. After I've you know after I've got the resistance and I've gotten it's brought me more to my emotional core of of who I am, and uh, that that will that is very freeing. That 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 is that that's like the thing when you, you know when you know I mean when you're happy with it. And even now it makes me as well. I mean, I don't know, it might be an age thing, but but now when I watch things or I read books and that there, and there's something that I watched something today, actually. I was in a meeting today when it was with the Royal Marines charity, and there was a couple of videos they showed, which is done off of veterans who who've you know had some hard times, but they've been supported by the charity. And I just had that m- massive emotional moment. And I don't know whether it's my experience, you know, like I said, after operations and that. But for me, it's it's that. I like being able to go there now and feel those emotions and feel those tears well up and go, you know, and feel one with, with those people, whether it be through love or, you know, through empathy or sympathy or, or trying to reach out and help. I, I, I really, really, really enjoy that now. And acting has, has helped me do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a beautiful one. I'm, I've, can see that you know i think as you talked about walling up our emotions and this is this is an analogy i've used a lot recently the yin and the yang you know you have the hard is the the white so we go in you know i mean obviously we've heard you know you've got the compassion that you took through your whole service this this seeing the commonalities in in fellow humans but when you're in the middle middle of a firefight that's no time for uni- unicorns and kittens and rainbows. You know what I mean? You got to do what you got to do. If I go into a burning building or cut someone out of a car, yeah. but then we have to process that, which is the soft side. And I think the the danger of a lot of us in uniform is we become this solid white circle. We kind of believe in the John Wayne Schwarzenegger bullshit, that that's what a man is. And we forget that it was kindness and compassion that sent us into service in the first place. And we have to show ourselves that kindness and compassion. I found that writing, and obviously you found that that acting has allowed us to, to pull some of those bricks down. Doesn't mean that, you know, the, the foundation is there and that's our strength and that is resilience. Process trauma is resilience. But you do become stoic in 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 the wrong way sometimes. And I found that through through writing through you know even these conversations i'm able to really tap into those emotions now and i'll well up you know especially oh god forbid it's it's a a dad or a single dad with a kid which is what i had most of my life i'm in fucking tears you know but that's beautiful it's it's a purge you're not there's no shame or about it it's like i can i can like it's a cleansing it's cleansing your soul in it yeah it's you know but but again and you don't want it i don't see it as a selfish thing i see it for for the good of, of 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 humanity but I, I, you know, when you said that about the, what I did find, and I, is being in, I mean, and you must have noticed as a firefighter as well, but being in, being in contact, and the the buzz and the electricity buzzing through you, and the, I've never felt anything. You know what I mean, that that to me, can be and has been, and I've seen it with my friends, addictive. And needed, and like that was, 
and that's one of the big struggles I see in some of the, you know, some of my friends is coming back from that because that there's never going to be anything as euphoric as that ever. You know what I mean? Ever. And they, you know, you've got to keep a weary eye on them because they're going to have to come back from that. Because You cannot live life like that. You know what I mean? And be as lucky all the time. Because no matter what, I know we, we all think, we're indestructible, but I realise now that's a complete nonsense, absolute nonsense. You know, and I, but I, I, I definitely seen that. You know that it's not a John Wayne thing, because I still think you need, especially when you're a leader and you're in charge of people, like a section, troop, company, a company in theatre, whatever else. Now, you have to have, you are a human being completely, but you have to be, you know, that robust figure that. People, you're completely approachable, but people think you've got a bit of a, and this like again, it's not superficial because you've got that trained and conditioned mind. It brings you to that level, but people think you're just that little level tougher to, you know what I mean? The, to, to lead and, to, you know what I mean? The, so when you turn around and before you go out the gate and you know that you're going to be in contact in five minutes, but you could turn around, you look, you look at your guys and you just got little, and they look at you in the eyes. And they look about 10 years old again. They're just looking at you and they're going, yeah, you'll be all right. Don't worry. But in your head, you're going, yeah, I might be fucking dead as well, mightn't I? But, but you don't, You because that, that's it. Are you acting or are you playing again? But you've got to be that. That's your that's your role as a leader is to inspire them and make sure they have that. And in that moment in time, you not having that could be a failure, you know what I mean? And you as a leader, you know what I mean? So there's, you got to be that, but they've always got to. You, you, you are that. You're that person who's always going to be there, to be. And it's a classic. One of my friends, when I was a corporal, um, became a mountain leader. And um, my first, he was a friend of mine anyway. My sergeant major, he just, he just said like, when, when you're in charge of people, you treat them like your children. You know, you've got kids, you know, problems. I said, yeah, it'd be fine. He goes, so, so if they do well. You give them a good job. You give them, a, you know, uh, you congratulate them. Give them a chuck up and say, like, you know, and give them, give them a good direction out there. Give them a big thing out there, and, and reward them. Just give them, like, you know, the love that they deserve out there. And when they, when they don't, and they mess up, or they're, you know, what I mean, and they completely mess up, then you put them on the straight and narrow. It's different ways of doing that, but you put them on the straight and narrow. You still love them. It's still positive, but it's your duty to put them back on to what what their moral compass is right. They still own it. They're still responsible, but they know that the moral compass, if you go that way, you're going to slip off the slope. You're not going to, you know, you've got to do that. So you treat, you know, I mean, and I've always, in command or whatever else, and I've always treated my people, same as my kids. When they're good, it's theirs. It's their mission command. It's yours. Your adventure. It's not my adventure. It's your adventure. You know, let, you know and that's it. And they run with it. But when when they don't, you're, I'm duty bound to go, you come here, sit down. And even like, you know, as a sergeant major, I've given some of the best bollockings in my life. Absolutely, you know, performances at, you know, we're talking like, you know, Lawrence Olivier level. <laughs> you know, get him in, shut, you know, shut the fucking door, get the bar, 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 bar. And another thing, you get, right, right, right. Like, get the fuck out of my office. You know what I mean? That's it, walk out and you're going, yeah, I was quite happy with that one. And then you get, <laughs> it'll re- resonate down the corridor in the lines or wherever else. And they give it, don't worry, assault major. He's in a mega bad mood. I'm going, on point. And that's it, because because the end of the day, what he's done, and if you've got a man with a, a worthwhile experience in in my core, 
you've been there and done it. You know exactly. Before he does something, you you know what he's doing. He's only a clever Marine if he doesn't know what you've been doing. You know what I mean? That's it. So it's that, you know what I mean? So you know. So it's not, you're not in any way, there's no malice or hatred. But if I don't kick him up the ass and get him on the straight and narrow, he, that will affect him. If I do do it, that means he'll make sure that when he's a boss or he's in charge, that isn't, they keep, they keep, you know, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. You've been on time. You know, just different things. You've just got to keep them on a straight and narrow. As a Royal Marine Sergeant Major, it's a bit different than being a dad. You know what I mean? So believe me, I didn't do that to my kids. <laughs> Even though, you know I mean? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to be mindful of your time. We've been talking almost two and a half hours, but I want to make sure that we do kind of explore Sumray a little bit more. So talk to me about who was behind the production, where you are at the moment, and then when people can expect it. Right, Sunray is going to be a feature-length film. It's based around a character called Andy, who is the Sunray, and he's the was a team commander for a uh, an operations team, a reconnaissance team uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Funny old thing uh, in the Royal Marines, um, but times moved on. He's now settling into Civvy Street, and he's like one of our friends is he's struggling with that fusion and coming off that, that high and that ride and events that happened uh, on operations. Uh, he's lost his wife. Uh, he's disaffected with his daughter, but he really wants to try and make amends for that. And his daughter is involved with a young guy who he's not met yet and he's not aware of, but uh, the daughter goes out uh the guy gets, oh no, I'm telling the story, can't do that. No, right, stop there. No spoilers. Right, so basically, it just follows the journey uh, as he does. Things don't go his way, but he's a, he's a man of many talents and he's got a, a you know, a gang of uh, very capable individuals. But it's a, although it's an action thriller, it's firmly based on uh, mental health and also what's real and what's unreal. You know, that, you know, that, that storytelling bit of what is and what isn't. And I think that's important because that is so much part of storytelling. Um, it was stimulated by a guy called Sammy Seeley, who is a former Royal Marine, became a naval photographer, uh, and now he's a freelance uh, movie maker. And his wingman came on board, which are Dan Shepard and James Clark, who are both former Royal Marines who are now naval uh, uh, movie makers or f- photographers and movie makers. And I got pulled in because Sammy, well, Dan was in training with my son and Sammy was going to course my son. And they're going, oh, we know you're you're an actor now. We've just got this thing to get you involved in. So I got pulled in with a, a few other friends of mine who are, who are now actors as well. Who are, so the, the main cut, because so the three filmmakers initially are three former Romans. The four men in the, in the team as such are actors who are former Romans commanders. So that's the gang that stimulated, done it. We got together down in Portsmouth in uh, in the south of England and threw together a, a smaller trailer, which is the one you can see on YouTube. So we filmed that in about 24 hours. So have a look at it. And that was just the old, if you weren't on camera, you were running with, uh, you know, the, the boom mic. If you weren't, you know, you were making a tea. So everyone was concurrent activity and we just threw together, made this to reach out for crowdfunder. As filmmakers, uh, obviously Dan, James, and Sammy are incredible. They're natural. They've got a very, very natural talent 
and when you meet um when you meet good cinematographers they they, they watch the they watch the angle of the light they watch the way things bounce off they understand how to manipulate digital imagery especially nowadays it's, it's open to a whole world for movie making and i'd say for for the poor man's movie making as well for indie movie making it's incredible and these guys they own it they've got they've got the skill so we got uh, from crowdfunder from our little video you can see on youtube we got um a about 120k i think with a couple of investors as well so 120,000 pounds and we were going to make a three episode um a uh, online uh, uh series as as like a pilot for possibly something bigger um luckily we had uh, some very um accomplished editors including uh the editor from Picky Blinders, The Crown, and Royal, uh, The Crown, and Sherlock. And uh, he had a look at it and said, you need this to be a feature film. You need this to be a movie. So uh, the guys have re-edited, and it's come out as a, as a movie. It went to the American film market at the start of November this year. Uh, there was interest. It has been picked up in a couple of countries, I think, I believe, but still to be confirmed. Uh, and it's now with a distribution company in London and they're looking to get it out in the new year. I mean, it's been a while coming, but you think about for a bunch of bunch of gang, and we, we've both on a lot of professional people and actors, you know, incredibly talented as well. So that's what that money's paid for. Uh, and I think we've, I haven't seen the full film yet, but I've seen some of the... Um, the drafted trailers that the guys have created. And I, I'm impressed with it. I'm impressed with the work. You know, they're, they're very talented lads. And, and I hope my acting and the storytelling comes across well and, and they can, they can, they can make it work. But remember it is a, it's a, it's a relatively very cheap feature film, which I think will be punching well above its weight. So fingers crossed. Beautiful. Well, you have to let me know, you know, when it's come out in the UK, when you actually have a yeah. date and a place and then the same for the US and obviously I'll share it on my end. No, that'd be lovely. That would be, be wonderful. Well, I just, like I said, I want to be mindful of your time. So just before I let you go, though, I'm sure people are intrigued. You know, you have, you know, such a, a library of, of work that you've done. Where are the best places to find you online and on social media? All right. So it's, it's Tip Cullen at Tip Cullen, I think Insta. Uh, there's not again famous last words, but Tip Cullen on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I've also got a Vi Vimeo, 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 the Vimeo, Vimeo. That's the word, Vimeo. Uh, Vimeo channel. Uh, but and I do have a website, but it's getting just rebooted at the minute. My mate, my mate does it does it for me. Who's a bit of a guru again, a former Royal Marine who's a guru. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. And that's it. And I've got IMDb. I'm on IMDb. And my uh, agent is Julie Fox Associates. So if there's any filmmakers out there that need a, a honking great Irish actor that you know, can can tell a good story, uh, get hold of Julie Fox. She'll sort, sort you out. Brilliant. Well, I said this to, to Bobby Burke, who's a firefighter actor friend of mine. Yeah. Putting it out there when I write this this story, one of my kind of fantasies is all the people that I know they're already in that industry come yeah. together. You know, like Spencer from the stunts and yeah, and yeah. Uh, Shane. You know, I mean, who knows? So so maybe one day I'll actually get to to walk on set with you. We'll see. No, nah, no, nah, but James, lovely meeting you. I mean, thanks very much for for having me on the on your podcast because uh, 
it's great. I like you know you said purging or cleansing the soul. I think chatting chatting with you is it does does help massively.